This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to People Bank Park, home of the 2021 York Revolution. good polygraph examiner, we like to call polygraph examiners neutral seekers of the truth. But I finally got to the house and I was there before the ambulance. The mom comes running out, holding the baby, not breathing blue. We go back inside where it's warm and I start doing the chest compressions and trying to breathe in through the whole nose, mouth, you know, the, right. how we were taught. We were all taught infant CPR. Right. This is Diakonasa Cups Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And uh, man, it is good to be back uh, behind the mic here for season two. This is the very first episode of season two. I'm really glad that you are listening. Uh, took a long break over uh, starting back in November, uh, basically two and a half months. Uh, the podcast has been off, provided a a good break for me as uh, I finished up uh, at Ellicott and Company. We were really busy over the holiday season, and in the midst of that, I was in the midst of making another big transition. What transition is that? Well, back in September uh, or October, I started the process to get back into law enforcement and was blessed enough to get through the background process and land a job once again as a police officer at a department here in South Central Pennsylvania. Huge decision. Uh, It was a big decision for Lauren and I. Uh, We took a lot of time to pray about it. We sought the counsel of a faithful and trusted couple in leadership at our church. Uh, I completed a SWOT analysis. If you don't know what a SWOT analysis is, it's uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's kind of like a pro and cons list, but on steroids. So I completed that. uh, And ultimately, Lauren and I decided uh, we wanted to do it. And so uh, I was sworn into that department on December 27th. That is literally 21 years to the date that I was sworn in at the Lancaster City Police Department. Um, My swear in date there was December 27th, 2000. So that was really cool. I didn't pick the swear in date. Uh, the chief of my new agency picked that date, uh, and it just was a really cool uh, thing to be sworn in to a different department 21 years to the date uh, I was sworn in at Lancaster City. Really excited about the opportunity at a new department. Uh, it should go without saying that, you know, this podcast is my own. I do this podcast on my off time, uh, on my own, and what I say and promote here and talk about. Uh, are my own opinions, my own uh, ideas, my own, uh, they're my own. I'm not representing my department, and you will never hear me talk about my department on the podcast where I work. And I would ask if, if you know where I work, uh, just just don't put it out there uh, on the Diakonasa Cups Calling Facebook page or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I do this on my own. This is, this is for you. Uh, the people that listen to the podcast that I appreciate so much. And uh, yeah, I'm not here representing my department, but I'm excited to get back in. So what what's that mean? Uh, what does it change for the podcast, if anything? 
Well, it does. Ultimately, I'm back to rotating shifts. I'm working odd days and hours, and uh, I have to balance that schedule uh, with my family. So the podcast is going to go down to one episode per month. It will fall on the third Tuesday of every month, uh, Lord willing, and seems like a long wait between each episode, but each episode will be a long form episode, uh, probably three plus hours long. So that'll give you a month to to get through them. Uh, in addition, I will be offering extra live episodes uh, for my patrons. These live episodes will happen quarterly with my $10 plus a month patrons being able to interact live on those episodes. And my other patrons who do five or more dollars per month will be able to listen to those episodes once they've been recorded uh, and, and put into Podbean. So you know, if, if you feel like one episode a month isn't enough, you can always become a patron. I also wanted to share some other new things that are happening on the podcast. So on my time off, I created a brand new website, www.diakonosacc.com. That's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S-A-C-C.com. Would love if you checked it out. There are many ways you can support the podcast, which I've laid out on the website. And one of them is signing up. Uh, for podcast emails and updates, uh, which you can do right from the website. It also has a link to learn uh, how to become a patron. And speaking of patrons, I did want to say, um, listen, all of you have been amazing. My patrons have been amazing. The podcast was was off uh, and and I was away from it for, for over two months and I was still blown away by all of you. I had listens and downloads every single day. Uh, for for episodes on the podcast. I had people reaching out telling me that they were sharing the podcast. I had emails uh, coming to me of great encouragement that that other people were sending me. And I had new patrons joining to help me make Diakonasa Cops Calling better, even though it was on break for, for two and a half months. Some of the patrons that joined me over the break include Philip T., Bethany G. and her family, and Will G. Just using the last initials there to just protect their privacy uh, somewhat, uh, but all of them were okay with me uh, giving my shout out here on the air. So I just wanted to thank all of them for their support and becoming patrons. And uh, I did have a couple other patrons that that reached out to me and, and didn't want me to share uh, their names on the air, and that, that's totally fine. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. If you want to become a patron or you just want to learn more about the podcast or this is the first time you've ever uh, listened to an episode, you can learn more about me. You can learn more about the podcast. You can learn more about the mission and goals of the podcast by going to www.diakonosacc.com to learn more. Also, while I was off, I had the pleasure of being a guest on a national radio program called Stand in the Gap Radio. Uh, That's hosted by Sam Rohr. Uh, he's a past Pennsylvania representative and now the president of American Pastors Network. Uh, and if you go to www.standinthegapmedia.org backslash radio backslash and look for the episode that aired on December 8th, 2021, you can listen to that as well. I also try to remember to put a link to that episode uh, in the comments for uh, this episode that you're listening to right now. All right, so that was kind of long-winded, but I did want to catch everyone up on what's been going on these past couple months and let you know what's coming up. I'm pretty pumped uh, for a great second season, and I've got a great first guest for season two, so let's get into that right now. 
My guest on this episode is retired detective Chris DePato. Chris worked for the Lancaster City Police Department for 25 years, retiring in 2016. During his time at LCPD, he was assigned to patrol, the drug suppression unit, canine, and detectives. Over his career, he earned many commendations and awards. In 2010, while assigned as a detective, Chris completed training to become a certified polygraph examiner. Currently, he is the owner of Precision Polygraphs and Investigations, LLC. He has earned a reputation as an excellent polygraph examiner and is continually working to refine and improve his craft. Chris, thanks so much for coming on and giving your time on this episode. Hey, I appreciate it, Martin. Thank you so much. <laughs> you are the first guest that broke out the Martin. And, uh, That's I, because it surprised me. I, and what shocks me is, so just a couple weeks ago, just to catch everyone up here, a couple weeks ago, uh, you and I were doing something together. and We were in a room by ourselves, <laughs> not as big as this. but Right. And, and um, you, uh, you found out during that conversation or right before that conversation that my first name was Martin. And I was shocked because we worked together. I mean, you, you started, when did you start Lancaster City? Well, as a CSA, I got hired in 1990, but then okay. as a police officer in 91. Okay. And I got hired there in December 2000, and you retired in 2016. So we worked together. I don't think we were ever on the same shift together. No, I think we did details together and stuff like that, but never were on the same right. squad or unit. Right. But we worked together. The fact that my first actual name is Martin and not Anthony was something that people gave me a hard time about all the time. So I was shocked. But see, I've spoken to several people, retired, granted, all retired, but not one of them knew that your name was Martin. So um, I don't think it was as widely known as you think it was. Okay. Well, maybe it was just more widely known with guys I came on the job with and that came on after me and that I worked with, I guess. Well, I sure. thought They would I have th seen diplomas and things like that right. that would have had your... Right. Your yeah. Government first name. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, it, I do try to, uh, it, it, it's so confusing. I, I, every time I call anywhere, uh, you know, I, I say, you know, this is Anthony Weaver. Well, we can't find you. Okay. Try M Anthony, try Martin A. I get stuff in the mail that's listed to Manthony, like just Manthony. Um, so it's always, it's always, I just had to start with a joke. I figured I'm not as funny as low organically. So I thought I'd try something. So. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. I like, I, I like the curve balls right off, right off the front here. For sure. It, it just keeps me, keeps me sharp. But so you're, and, and you're probably good at, you know, throwing those curve balls because you're actually kind of comfortable. I wouldn't say even kind of comfortable. You're probably very comfortable behind the mic because you do, uh, you call games for the York Revolution, which is a professional baseball game or a pay baseball team. Well, yeah, but I don't call the games. There's a radio guy that does the color commentary, if you okay. will. I am what's the in-stadium public address announcer. So gotcha. I'm the guy that's like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to People Bank Park, home of the 2021 York Revolution. I do stuff like that. And then okay. I announce, now batting for the, re for the revolution, your... Second baseman, number one, Liu Biamitz Rodriguez. And I'll do stuff like that. Okay, so you're not doing like play-by-play -play then. You're basically, okay. And so you're not on the radio. I announce all the batters. The, uh, gotcha. I do the in-between inning reads if there's sponsors. That, okay. You know, hey, fans, go out and buy Slim Jims. They're great, you know, because okay. they're paying for that right. advertising space. Okay. 
So now, how did you how did you ever land in that position? Like, how does one just find themselves doing something like that for a baseball team? So when my kids were younger, we were a part of they participated in youth sports in Hemfield. OK. My daughter was a cheerleader. My son was a football player. So as parents, you have to volunteer. It's kind of like voluntold right. to do different things on game days. So there were people that helped in the concession stand and there were people that sold programs. There were people that held the down markers. Gotcha. Okay. Well, one of the positions was that of a public, you know, the announcer. Well, my wife at the time had said, well, you've got a big mouth and you love to talk. <laughs> so I signed you up for that. So I was voluntold to do this. Okay. So I did that for many years for midget football um, at Hempfield. And then a guy heard me said, I'm the high school football announcer for Hempfield. I'm retiring. I want you to take my place. So I was kind of handpicked for that. Okay. So I did Hempfield high school football for over a decade. Towards the middle of that, a guy heard me and says, hey, I work for the Lancaster Barnstormers, but I also know that the York Revolution is looking for somebody. He set up that interview, and that's how I got the job. Okay. Cool. So it's just people hearing me on the microphone. So uh, when did you first start calling York Revolution game? Or, Two, 2010. Again, what is the proper, I said, call York Revolution games again? What Public is the address proper? announcer. Okay. 2010? The, the announcer. Just say the announcer. The announcer. Like the Ed McMahon to, to Johnny Carson. <laughs> so 2010. 2010. Okay. And then you were doing it, you did it for several years and then took a break and now you're back doing some games again. Right. I did it for four years and then they needed somebody that could announce. They wanted somebody that was full-time that could do all 80 home games. And because I had a full-time job working right. for the Lancaster City Police Department, I couldn't offer them all 80 games. Right. So they had, they went and found somebody else that could do it. They contacted me a couple of years later and now I'm like an official substitute announcer. If they need somebody last minute, they call me up. Okay. That's pretty cool. I oh, think, I love I it. It's it, fun. Yeah. I think it would be fun. Is there a lot of prep that goes into that? Or, I mean, do you have to like study and I, I'm, I'm sure you have to like learn the names of the players and That's pronounce the hardest them correctly. Part. The hardest part is pronunciation of the players' names because I think one team had... Lewis, Luis, and Lewis. You know, I mean, it was like three different pronunciations okay. of the same first name. Okay. And you had to remember which one was which. And you have to, yeah, and there's a lot of foreign players. In the Atlantic League, right. there's a lot of foreign players. You know, a lot of uh, Latino players. Right. So there's a lot of different pronunciations. Yeah, yeah. So, that's you, the hardest part. Are you rolling your R's and everything? Oh no, I don't. I don't go that far. <laughs> but you know, my my wife is is Puerto Rican, so she does help me. Like I'll call her up and be like, "Hey, what's the correct way to say this?" And she'll help me. Yeah, yeah. So well, that's that's pretty cool. I don't I don't know. That, I mean, you're the first person I've had one that's a, a public announcer, a public address system announcer for a baseball team. So well, I'm, I'm not using that voice. I mean, if you want me to, I can, but. <laughs> I just do it for the sake because so, you're not talking a lot. You are the longest you talk in a, as a public address announcer is doing a commercial or doing a sponsorship. Got you. you know? And I'm assuming that's like written out. 
It's all written and out. You it's like, all scripted. All you're doing is reading. Okay. And I don't have to look at a camera when I'm doing it because nobody sees my face. Right. They're all looking at the field and what's going on down there. I'm behind them and I can just sit there with it in my hand and read it into the microphone. And they just think it's, yeah. you know, there's, they don't know the behind the scenes. It's like sausage. Everybody loves sausage. Nobody wants to see how it's made. Right. So... So you have a voice then, because you you said I don't I'm not using the voice right now. No, no, so no. You... I drop my voice okay. when I'm doing public address announcing. Like I said, ladies and gentlemen, that's not how I normally talk. Right. So you do you do that for like everything you're you're calling then? Yep. Why? The enunciation and the projection is much better. Okay. Now did you just learn that, or did someone? Oh no, I've been doing that for years. I've been doing okay. that since I started announcing. I have a relatively higher kind of pitched voice. Okay. So. I learned that when I drop my voice and go a couple octaves lower, it projects through the microphone and out the speakers much better. Well, I guess it worked. I mean, people were like yeah, attracted, got, attracted to your voice. I'm yeah. Like, I even tried out for the public address announcer for the Baltimore Orioles. I made it through three phases, but I got cut in the fourth. And how close? I don't know. I don't know got, how they don't tell you that. They don't tell you. Nope. Oh, that would have been cool. I went to a sound studio and they give you a script and you have to read things and announce players and do stuff like that. So I was doing all that for him and that got me to the next step. But then somewhere I got dropped off. So if, if, if someone would hear you at a York revolution game and be like from a pro team or whatever, um, and be like, Hey, we really want you to come on. Would you do it? Would you give up what you're doing right now and go do it? full-time for like a pro team? That's a good question. I'd have to have, I, the money would be fantastic. And it's only part-time. You think you're, any sports team, if it's, let's say it's the NFL. Right. How many home games do they really play in a season? They well, play probably eight. seven? Se yeah, seven, eight. seven, eight. Okay, so maybe a playoff game. So that's eight games that you would have to, eight or nine games, you know, that you would have to be there for. Right. I don't know what the prep is for that. Right. Probably a little. But there's maybe some preseason games that you'd have to be there. But you'd only work, what, 15 days? Right. And probably get paid. A, last I looked, most public address announcers in professional sports are getting about sixty to 70000 a year. Really? Yep. Okay. So. Well, so then I need to start working on this. <laughs> saying. It's a great side gig. <laughs> Not, I mean, a side side gig. Yeah, there yeah. Um, I, don't, I probably don't have the voice for it. No, I, I think anybody you know can. What? I think anybody can. It's just, it's different. Again, you have yeah. to do it. You have to, like, when I started at Midget, I was scared every time I'd click the microphone on, uh, touchdown by number, you know, because <laughs> there right. in, in football, you are announcing the play-by-play. -play. Right. You know, number 52, Billy Smith on the tackle for Hemfield, you know, right. balls placed at the 37-yard line, second and eight. You know, I did all yeah. that stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super, super interesting. I will tell you that since I started doing this, I've actually had um, people come up to me and say, hey, this sounds really weird, but your voice for the podcast is, is actually nice. It's not like grating or anything like that. I'm like, uh, thank you, I guess. That's a compliment. Thank you. Yes. Right. Sure. <laughs> so anyways, we're talking about York Revolution. <laughs> Let's make a uh, left turn here. Uh, you, what you do, uh, full, full time or, or part-time full time. I, I, I don't even know if you would say you do it full time. Um, 
but your main job, your main thing that you're doing right now is these these polygraphs. So what's the name of, the, of your business again? Precision Polygraphs and Investigations. Okay. And when when did you start that business? Was it immediately upon retiring or even before you retired? Yeah, I think most of us know that when we're going to retire, you know, I think you plan ahead for that. You right. know, I think I probably knew around February or March of 2016 that I would be retiring in July. Okay. Um, my wife and I talked about it and I told her I wanted to try this. I, you know, I, I became a police officer. I started working for the Lancaster city police department at the age of 20. Mm-hmm. So I left college. I came after two years, I came home, got hired as a CSA for the city. And I started my career as a police officer at age 21. And that's all I knew. I mean, we all had odd jobs when we were kids, but I didn't know how to do anything else. I knew how right. to be a police officer, but I'm not a salesman. I'm not, you know, an investment banker. I don't know how to do those things. Right. So to get another job, you either become a cop again, you know, no, no <laughs> like, offense to you, no offense yeah, to you, yeah. um, become a security guard, you know, but most guys don't know what to do. I had a, I was given a skill. I was sent to school to learn and hone a skill that benefited the Lancaster city Bureau of police during my employment. Why not take that skill and use it for myself upon retirement? Right. And, uh, yeah. So the, the school to become a poly, what's the proper polygraphist, polygraphist, polygraph examiner, polygraphist. Okay. Cause I, uh, I thought it might be polygraphist, but I'm like, I don't want to make a fool out of myself and say that big word and then realize, you know. I after. wouldn't have. Well, yeah, I would have corrected you. It's, yeah. Yeah. Polygraphist. Okay. So um, what, uh, what's that school like? Like how much training? It's, it's intense. I know that. Hardest school I've ever done. Okay. Bar none. How long? About three and a half months. Okay. And from what I understand, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you, when you take it, you stay, uh, or, or you, you don't have to. Okay. I chose to because it's helpful. Well, yes, because I, I know people that went to the school and they would, and now the the school is at uh, Fort Indian town gap in Lebanon County. Okay. So within the gap itself, they have something called NCTC Northeast counter drug training center. Correct. It's federally funded and it's for law enforcement officers. So there they do have an accredited polygraph school as a part of that institution. Right. So it's not that far from home, you know, from here. It's what, 45, 50 minutes, maybe an yeah, hour? Yeah, depending where you live. Right. Yeah. So you can drive that hour there every day, drive an hour home after a long class, and then you study at home or you can stay there and you have other people that study buddies. Right. Other people that are in the school and you can bounce things off of. And that to me, was the most helpful. So I stayed. Okay. Do, did you find that most um, people in the school, most uh, officers in the school did that? Yes. I think they're, well, again, this school is, it's very, I don't want to use the word prestigious, but it's, it's well sought, you know, for other police departments. My suite mates, we all stayed in our, we all had our own room and it was a suite. But then when you stepped out, there was a common area. That okay. had a couple couches and a TV. My suite mates, the guys that lived on my floor, one was from Syracuse, New York. The oh, other okay. one was New Hampshire State Police. And the third guy was from Kenai, Alaska. Wow. Okay. So he so came yeah, all the way commuting. from Alaska. He's not commuting. None of those guys are. No. 
And those, so there was the four of us. Okay. And we're still good friends to this day. So uh, three and a half months, um, pretty strenuous. You, you have to, is there multiple tests you have to pass or is there just one big test at the end? The main instructor is a gentleman by the name of Elmer Criswell. And he is, like I said, he's probably, you would call a guru okay. for a polygraph. Um, his tests were outrageous. Just to give an example, the final exam had 800 questions. It took me over 10 hours to do. You're sitting in a classroom for 10 hours? You could take a break. Sit no, up. I know, but still, like 10 hours? To- mm-hmm. Took me 10 hours. The multiple choices, it was a question, and there'd be letters. Your choices are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. And the last couple of them were a combination. It could be A, C, and D, or B, oh my word. F. It, it was, it's meant to mentally mess with you. And it did. Okay. It was, like I said, the hardest thing I've ever done. Okay. Um, how many people were in your class? 18. Did all of them pass or did some? We had one dropout within the first week. Okay. And because it was early, they, they brought somebody else in. They said, you only missed a week. You have a lot to catch up on, but we think you can do it. And so we did have a guy quit within the first week because he couldn't handle it. Okay. And, but everyone else that was in your class passed? Yep. Oh. Now, if you fail a test, and a fail is anything below an 80. Okay. So if you get a 79%, you failed the test. You have one opportunity to make that test up. Okay. If you fail it again, you're out of the class. All right. If you pass it, you're still in, but you can't fail anymore. Yeah. So I think with the, with the polygraphs, and, and I actually just recently admitted this to you, that there's a lot of like conf- I, yeah, confusion about how they work or what they really are. Uh, there's some mistrust. And, and I even admitted to you that throughout my career, I actually started trusting them less. Okay. Um, and uh, so, so I had talked to you about that. And then you talked to me again and, and reiterated how they work and kind of reminded me some, about some stuff that I had forgotten about. And by the end of that conversation, I'll tell you that I was, my, my confidence in them improved because- Was you, that just because you passed or? <laughs> yes, folks. That's, <laughs> Chris here g- recently gave me a polygraph for my new job. And I, well, I didn't want to tell you that before I took it because I didn't want to offend you. And I also didn't want to be like, hey, I don't think these are, I don't think these are legit. My, um, my only concern before, when your chief called me and he said, hey, keep this on the DL. We right. don't want anybody else to know right now. But, you know, Anthony Weaver is applying to be a police officer. We need to give him a polygraph test. And he asked me if I, how I felt about it. And I said, I knew you. Right. We'd done work together, but we didn't know each other, know each other. We never hung out really yeah. I think, outside of work. I don't think we ever hung like out. Like a work time. acquaintance, I think yeah. is the best way to probably work. Not that we, we didn't dislike each other. I know that. Right. But we came up at different times. Yeah. You know, so I said, to, I said to your chief, I said, if Anthony's okay with it, I'm okay with it. I, right. You know, it's, I don't have, I don't think it's a conflict of interest for me as long as he's, because we do have to talk about some private things. Right. And I believe a couple things that we talked about 
I certainly didn't know Martin, mm-hmm. but no, not just that. <laughs> but I mean, we did talk right. about some very personal type things during, cause I it's, asked it's you very intense, personal questions. Right. It's a, it's an intense thing. And I think you told me information that maybe not a lot of people know. Yeah. So were you going to be okay in that situation talking yeah. to me and giving me that information, knowing that, okay, is he going to tell anybody, you know, will he re- keep that confidential? Now right. I did out you as Martin here on there, but I, I didn't think that was that big a deal. No. But yeah, so that was my only concern. It wasn't, if you would have said, hey, I'm not really sure I believe in them, I'd have been like, oh, well, he's either going to be a believer or not believer by the time yeah. we're done. But see, this is how it messes with you. Because I was like, if I go, because if I go in and tell Chris that, hey, I, I don't really trust polygraphs. The, the polygraph examiner is going to be like, oh, this guy, this guy might not pass. Or this guy, got something this, shady, this something guy, this guy is hedging already. He's already hedging because he's like trying to, to lay, you know what I mean? So like the, the whole thing just like messes with people. Prior police officers are probably one of the hardest people to polygraph. I do have, I get anxiety a little bit because you may know some of how it works. You may not know all of how it works, but we've all done things in a career that maybe we're not super proud of. Oh, yeah. Well, that's going to come out. And it also, you also um, have engaged in enforcement activities that kind of leak over into some of the the questions that are asked about your personal life. Well, here's an example. You were an SEU. Yes. I was DSU. Right. So we all did vice kind of work. Right. Did you ever go out as a John and try to pick up prostitutes? Right. Okay. So one thing, one of the questions on the packet is, did you ever solicit a prostitute? Right. No. Personally, no. Professionally, yes. So, and, and your brain can't stop you from... Differentiating. Thinking about that stuff. So then you start worrying about... Well, but then that's like, my job as an examiner to reword the question to eliminate that doubt. Right. So the polygraph is only as good as the examiner. Right. And I, I, and I think I even expressed that to you. Like I, I felt that there have been situations that I'm aware of or was uh, involved in. And I felt like I've always felt that the, the polygraphist, how good the polygraphist is, has a lot to do with how accurate the polygraph is. But it's not just how good is he. Do you relate to the person? I've, 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 heard from so many people, oh, I took a polygraph and the guy was a jerk. Mm-hmm. He was mean. He was rude. Yeah. And he didn't make me feel comfortable. Right. Well, that's So they're f- nerved up. Right. And that's going to show up on a polygraph test. Okay. Yeah. Can I tell the difference between a lie and nervousness? Not, I mean, I can most of the time, but if somebody's like, well, I was just really nervous, but I didn't see it. I, how do I say that he's not telling me the truth? I don't right. know. But a good polygraph examiner, we like to call polygraph examiners neutral seekers of the truth. Okay. We are neutral. When I did it for the police department, I wasn't rooting for the detective. I hope this guy fails so we can charge him. I wasn't rooting for the guy like, Hey, I hope you pass. So you, you know, right. Get away with this, you know, or, or vindicate yourself. Right. I'm here to give you a polygraph. I'm neutral. I'm right. here to give you the best test possible. If you pass, congratulations. If you fail, Oh, well, but there's rapport. There has to be a rapport build. So if you came in nervous, 
and not sure about things, by the time you were hooked up and we did the polygraph, hopefully you felt better about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't say if you did or didn't, but only you can answer that. Yeah. No, I did. I just, I just, what was interesting to me is I was more nervous for this polygraph that I just took than the one I took when I was oh, like I we, 20 years old or whatever, 21 years old. And we know why. City. But we know why. Because in those 20 years, from the time you took the last one to this one, you've had a totally different life than you did from age oh, yeah. zero to age 21 when you took the first test. Right, right. Totally different life. Yeah. Many more experiences introduced to crazy things on the job. Right. We've done crazy things on the job. Right. That alters yeah. who we are. And, yeah. And those experiences and the things we've done, how does that relate to a polygraph 20, 21 years later. Right. Yeah. So uh, within law enforcement, when you were doing polygraphs in law enforcement for Lancaster City, what was the main, uh, because in, in Pennsylvania, actually, is there any state where polygraphs are admissible in court? Criminally, I don't believe so. Okay. But civilly, yes. Yes. And in Pennsylvania is one of those that it is, it is admissible civilly. Civilly. Yep. So within law enforcement, then, can you explain what the main function of polygraph exams was as a detective when you had that training? You're talking about it as an investigative? Correct. Polygraph? Sure. So in a criminal case, if let's say somebody's accused of stealing money from their work and the detective investigate, you're the detective investigator and you go, hey, look, I got two suspects. I've narrowed it down to two. I've done all this legwork. I just can't tell which one is which. I offered both of them to take a polygraph. They both said they would. You come to me and I give them both a polygraph test. Hopefully, somebody, hopefully they don't both fail. Right. But we get one that fails, one that passes. Well, we pretty much know who to go for. Right. And then you can use that as leverage. In an interrogation. In an interrogation. Correct. That type of thing. And you're hoping to get that confession. Right. So that's how it's, it should be the last thing done in any investigation. If you get in the same scenario, uh, theft from work, and there's 15 employees, and the detective goes, okay, all 15 of you, polygraphs. We're not going to do that. You have to do, a polygraph shouldn't be the first thing you do. It shouldn't be the middle thing you do. It should be the last thing you do. Yeah. Yeah. The very, if, if you're all out of evidence or things to do, options. let's give the polygraph. Yep, yeah. Options. Great work. Yeah. Cause then it just kind of opens, opens your options a little bit to, to interrogate that person. Well, it lets you know, do, am I zoned in on the right person or I am, am I not? Right. So, yeah. Um, and then you would also give polygraphs at, for uh, law enforcement backgrounds, obviously. Mm hmm something you still yep. do. If anybody wanted to work inside the Lancaster city police, whether you're going as a police officer or you're going as a custodian working in the records division or a CSA, they all got polygraphed. Yeah. So like just real briefly, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, a science behind it and polygraph. Okay. So a lot of people call them lie detector tests or polygraph examinations. Really, truly it's called physiological detection of deception. Okay. They call it PDD. Okay. So we're looking for physiological changes in the body that occur at a time of not stress, but if I can't think of the right word I want to use, if something's introduced into 
the equation. Here's an example, best way for me to put it. Let's say you're driving down the street, you and your wife, and you're, it's a date day. You don't have the kids and you're going to go driving and you're going to go to the beach for the day. And you're in your car and you're listening to music and you're having a great time and you're not paying attention. And you go underneath the bridge and you pop out on the other side and there's a state trooper running radar. You look down at your speedometer, you're doing 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. How do most people, maybe not police officers, because we're like, oh. but how would most people respond to seeing that police officer and realize they're doing 25 miles an hour over the limit? What physiological changes in the body occur? Oh, it's like a, the oh crap moment, slam on the brakes, you know. That's a physical. I'm asking you, what is the... Oh, your heart, your heart rate will go up. Correct. You might like start sweating a little bit. Correct. Yeah. Anxiety. The anxiety right. starts to build in your body. Now, in the same scenario, the police officer pulls out from his parking spot and throws his lights on. That conditions, those conditions exacerbate. They get worse. Right. Okay. So you start to pull over. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. I don't need this. And the police officer blows past you and he pulls over the car in front of you. He got him and not you. Right. So the minute you're not getting pulled over, the minute you realize you're not going to get a ticket, how does your body physiologically respond? Well, it just comes back down. Your heart rate comes down. You right. start relaxing. It, it's a relief. Yeah. Right. Okay. There's instant relief. That's polygraph. That's what we're looking for. When you go to tell the truth, I think I gave you these exact scenarios when we I, sat yeah, down. Yeah, I think you did. When you go to tell your truth, any truth, your body has... It's normal. Right. It flows out of your mouth normally. But when you know you're going to lie, even if it's a little lie, right. you have anxiety. Right. Am I going to get caught in this lie? Oh, hey, honey, let me show you this new shirt I bought. And she pulls it out. Your wife pulls it out. And it's hideous. You hate it. But you go, oh, it looks great. I love <laughs> it. Wear it tonight. Okay. She bounds away all happy. You're like, got away with that one. You didn't know you were going to get away with it. And right. The minute she bought it, bought that little lie, you felt relief. So when you tell the truth, there's very little emotion reaction within our body, physiological changes. When we know we're lying, we, as long as you have a conscience, I should preface it with that. Right. A Charles Manson is not going to pay, you know, he's not going to fail a polygraph probably because he doesn't care. Right. But most people have something to gain or lose when they take a polygraph. Have you, have you ever sat across from someone who's like a sociopath? That, Probably. Uh, you figure I'm doing what, 300 tests a year? I but, mean, but someone that where you were like, you get done with it or you're in the middle of it and you're like, I'm pretty sure this guy's a sociopath. Well, yeah, because I deal with people of that mentality right. in polygraphs when I do the post-conviction sex offender testing. Okay. I run into a lot of bad people. Right. Um, so you, uh, you kind of like got into how you use it now as a, as a, as a uh, uh, for lack of a better term, a private investigator, a, uh, uh, a private polygraphist. You use, you know, you do them for a myriad of, of reasons. What are some of the reasons... Or who are some of the people who call you to have them do them? You talked a little bit. Well, about obviously, we, we, I work for law enforcement agencies doing just nothing but pre-employment. Correct. Um, I haven't done anything else for law enforcement. I'm not doing criminal cases for them. Um, I also do polygraphs for attorneys. 
I'll have an attorney call me up. He'll say, hey, I have a client who's accused of stealing money from his business. Uh, the police want to give him a polygraph, but we want to give him one first just to see how he'll do. So they'll call me, they'll hire me, I'll come in and I'll do the polygraph for the attorney on his client. The third group of people that I mostly work for is what I just mentioned, post-conviction sex offender testing. And I don't think most people know that this exists. I don't think they do. And I think they'd be happy to know it exists. Why it's not more widely known, I don't know. Yeah. But so in the state of Pennsylvania and several states, many states throughout the U.S., if you were arrested, charged, and convicted of a sex crime, so you went to court, you either pled guilty, you were found guilty, whatever, there's sentencing as a part of sentencing, you have to go to jail. Maybe you don't go to jail. Maybe you go straight to probation. Whatever the case there is, once you hit that probation level, they are also required to go to counseling. It would be like Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. They they are mandated to go to sex offender treatment. Gotcha. So as a part of treatment and probation, they are required to take polygraphs to make sure that they are abiding by the rules of probation, parole, and treatment. So I do those as well. Okay. What's the craziest, whether it was in law enforcement, we were doing them for Lancaster City or uh, doing them privately. What do you, what's the most memorable or craziest thing that you can, that you can share? Um, do, you, do you remember anything like sitting in a room, like, like, like a crazy uh, confession or, or just something that happened in the moment when you're trying to do them? I had... Most of the ones I can't talk about because they, I I assume this is a PG show. (laughs) So, but we try, but it goes off the rails sometimes. (laughs) Gary Lowe. Anyway. um, So I had a guy, he was a younger guy, probably 18, 19. This was probably, I think within my second year of doing polygraphs. We're going back 2011 uh, for the city police. And he was accused of a sex crime. And when you do a polygraph, no polygraph usually lasts more than 12, 12 questions. Okay. Okay. So let's just say his was 12 questions long. It was probably like nine or 10, but whatever. So you do those questions multiple times. You don't just do the 10 to 12 questions and that's it. They get multiple bites at the apple. So it was during the second run of the questions all of a sudden he starts yelling, I can't take it anymore. And he starts trying to rip the equipment off of his body. He's standing up, sweat just pouring down his face. And he's trying to get the equipment off of his body. And I'm like yelling, don't touch my, because it's expensive stuff. Right. And I'm like, and it wasn't mine. It was the city's, but still. Uh, and he's like, I can't do this anymore. I did it. I did. And he just started confessing to everything midway through the second chart. So <laughs> I had that. I think I had that on iRecord. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, The most memorable one I had for law enforcement was also he's a current city police officer right now. I'm not going to mention names, (laughs) but if he hears this, he might be like, "No, that was me." Right before we go to do the polygraph, I've done the pretest. I've gone over all of the questions. He's literally sitting in the chair, hooked up. (sighs) He can't stop taking these right. heavy breaths and it's getting more rapid, more rapid. He's starting to hyperventilate. Right. 
So I quickly run over around the desk. I start unhooking him. I'm like, relax, calm down. I made him go outside. It was winter time. Probably weather like tonight, cold. And I said, you go outside and you stay outside for 10 to 15 minutes. Breathe that cold air. Let that relax. Because if you do that during the, I can't test you. Right. Right. So finally he, I gave him like 10, 15 minutes. I went and got him, brought him back and he ended up doing fine. He passed. Right. But he was all but hyperventilating. He almost passed. He would have passed out if I kept him, kept him and wouldn't have intervened. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think people can appreciate how, like the, the guy, the guy who's giving the examination, um, you know, Obviously, they they understand what's going on, but the person on the other side, I don't think people can fully understand the intensity of that because a lot of times there's a lot at stake. I mean, you're either being uh, investigated for a crime or you are having a background investigation conducted to gain employment. You want a job that you've dreamt about for years. Right. And so there's like so much at stake. And then you're saying this room across from a person you don't know very well, who's, who's kind of like in control of whether or not you get onto the next step. And you're thinking about every single negative thing you've ever done in your life. You're trying to remember it so that first of all, you don't lie about it. But see, that's why you're given that packet in advance, right? You're given that packet in advance to go over for what people don't know what we're talking about. When Anthony was getting prepared for the polygraph, they handed him a packet. That packet contained about 140 yeah. some questions on it that cover everything and anything you could have done yep. in your life. Yep. And you're trying to remember. Like, and the older you are, <laughs> the harder it is to remember back to your yes. 16, 17, 18. Like right. I'm 52 right now. If I had to think back to when I was 15, yep. 16, I'd have a hard time. And it never... I mean, for me anyways, I've taken two now, one back in 2000 and one uh, just, just a couple months ago. And both times during those tests, there was certain questions in those tests that were asked me. I'd filled out the packet. I was like, all right, I think I'm square. I think I've gotten everything down there. Doesn't, it didn't matter. There as was, soon as we review it. Two, yeah, as soon as we reviewed it, I remembered stuff. And then in the test, I don't know if you remember, there was like yep. a certain question where, where I remembered something that I didn't put in the packet. I, we and then we fixed about, it. Yeah. Um, it's just well, like one of those things where, you know, you just, your mind is on overdrive trying to make sure that you're. Right. But you're not hit with, you weren't hit with all of that on right. the day you showed up. You were given that Correct. packet, I don't know, how, like a week or two before. Yeah. So you have time to marinate, let it sink yeah. in think about things. It's not a race to get it done quickly. Right. So you're, yes, you are on the day of the reckoning, the day of the test. <laughs> the day of reckoning. <laughs> well, it is for some people. It's either, it's make or break. Yeah. Whether or not they get that job they've wanted since they were, yeah. you know, 10 years old and watching cops on TV. You right. Know? Um, but also from the time that you walked in that door, and I know we joked around a little bit, you know, I called you Martin right. right away. But until that time, until you took the test, which was maybe what, an hour and 45 minutes later, two hours yeah. later, mm-hmm. that we talked in a room by ourselves, were you not more comfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So you get more relaxed. You get, okay, right. I, I, I understand more now and I feel better about this. I got to air this. I got this off my chest. Right. 
makes you feel better. Yeah. As long as you know you're not hiding something still. Right. Intentionally. Right. Or omitting things. Yeah. Or falsifying. You should be good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I reiterate that throughout the test. Right. As long as you're not, you know, withholding, falsifying, omitting, you're going to do just fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's true. It's, but it's still just a big, like, mind bending thing. When like, I, it, you know, when I go to polygraph school, I think I took probably a hundred tests throughout the three and a half months. Everybody's hooking you up and going, Hey, I want to try this. I want to try this. Right. So you're guinea pigs all the time. So I got used to it. Well, I guess you would if you, and you also, uh, you know, you also gain like a very uh, good under, understanding of it because you can sit across here and you can explain to me generally what, how it works, but it's still, you really know how it works. The, the person on the other side well, of course. doesn't. Like I said, if, and I use this example with a lot of people, let's say somebody is working in a manufacturing job and they're applying to become a deputy sheriff or a police officer. I say to them, if I'm new at your job and you're teaching me, I have to trust that you're teaching me the right way to, I don't know how to do your job. Right. You're going to teach me how to do my, you know, to do your job. Right. When it comes to polygraph, you have no idea how this works. Right. You have to trust me that I'm giving you that best test possible. Right. That I'm going to do my best for you. Yeah. So I have the hard job. You have the easy job. All you have to do is tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and you know that going in, you're like, I'm not going in planning online or anything, but it's still, it was still, it's still stressful. And, and, uh, and, and when I, even when I, I told, I told my wife, I told Lauren, I said, so I, there's been some people who are like, oh, congratulations. I'm like, hold on. I still, I still have to pass my polygraph and my psychological. <laughs> the two things that are concerning me the most right now. <laughs> so, so, but you tell people that and they're like, oh, you, you know, then, then you're like, they're probably thinking like, oh, what's he trying to hide? And I'm like, I'm not trying to hide anything. It's just, you know, I just, I still got these things I got to pass, you know? Um, but that you know, ensures a good hiring process that, that police departments are getting the right people at that time. Right. That's not to say that Anthony Weaver isn't going to turn into a jerk two years from now and, and whatever. Right. Okay. But at the time you went through this process, a rigorous process, nonetheless, background, they're interviewing your family, your friends, your neighbors. Yeah. They are combing through your financial history. They are combing through your social media. Yeah. They are um, giving you a polygraph. They're giving you a psychological. After all of that, you were hired. Right. How, I don't know, but you were hired. <laughs> and with what I know about you, I mean, <laughs> anyway, you were hired. So you are deemed worthy to wear the badge and have a gun to take the oath and to serve and protect. What would, what would you say, 90% of the U.S.? That may be a high number that have to go through that same process throughout the United States. I know there are some police departments that don't polygraph. Right. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. Um, what would you say the number is that have to go through that exact same process? If you were to In put law enforcement? Yeah. Percentage of people that are wearing a badge that had to go through everything that you just went through. Oh, like the, the vast majority of them. Right. Okay. So... They obviously passed. They had to have done, they had to have been a good person. Right. Something went awry somewhere, maybe 10 years down the road. Right. They get arrested and everybody's like, oh, they hi I can't believe they hired that guy. 
Yeah. Well, he was hired 10 years ago when he was a good guy and something happened. See, now you, you hit on something. I want to ask you something because I think part of, the, part of the problem, do you find that people who are extremely religious or, or, or have a level of faith or Christianity or something like that uh, stress about it more? Because, and this is why. So like as, as a Christian, I generally believe that people are not good that we all are like just bad and that bad or flawed. Uh, there's a difference. I think I would say, I would say, I would say bad, like, you know, you know, just, just what I believe, you know, from the Bible, and we don't need to turn this into a big religious conversation, but I'm a Christian. So, but I'm just saying, but, but like, you know, in, in Romans, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So my worldview then is that, no one is good per se. We're all bad. We all have sinned. And um, so like as a Christian, then when I, when I go into like a polygraph and when I was getting ready to sit down with you, um, yeah, I'm not going in, I'm not playing online, but I also know that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a good person. Like there's no good within me. That's just my, my, my. But did you admit your faults? Yeah. Okay. Were those faults deemed okay in the eyes of the people hiring you? Yes. But do you find that people who, and maybe there is no difference, do you find it's easier to polygraph people who have some sort of level of faith or, or like a, a belief in, in a higher being or people who are just like atheists and don't believe in anything? Or maybe you don't even know. I think it's very difficult to ask that question because I don't. You don't get into touch like a, religion. Yeah, it's yeah. just an area that I, I think it's. I think it's irrelevant to law enforcement. As as as, I don't want that to sound mean or odd, but if if you are devout and you go to church three times a week, and I go at Christmas time and mm-hmm. Easter, mm-hmm. should it matter? That we wear the badge, you know, that no. you should wear the badge and I don't because I'm not worthy enough. No, if as long as you pass the process just like the other person. And that's my point. Yeah. So religion doesn't matter to me. And I don't ask. Yeah. I don't ask what I don't even think the packet. No. Even though it, it asks it, you many, many things. No. Religion is not one of them. Correct. Correct. So I don't think it which matters. Which is which is probably how it how it Safe. should be. And you know, sure. the law enforcement should be apolitical. But and- I agree with you. I don't I don't know that I would agree in using the word bad. I don't because I don't think most people associate it as as you are as you're more devout Christian than I am, I believe. So when you say the word bad, I think of it as okay, there's good guys and bad guys. Yeah. Because we use that. That's like terminology we use. Yeah. Right. So I don't look at people as bad. Flawed? Absolutely. I'm flawed. Mm -hmm. Okay. There isn't a person that walks with their footprint on this earth that isn't flawed in some way. Correct. But are your flaws so bad that you can't pass muster to become a police officer? Right. Well, if that was the case, then no one would be like, if, 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 if that was the case where you had You're to be flawed. sin-free. Yes, yeah, sin-free. Well, then we'd just be looking <laughs> the country at... country would run amok. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that it hasn't already in right. some ways, but yeah. that's another topic. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I think that someone who, who has, like, a level of character, integrity, 
high morals, um, honesty, honesty, trustworthiness is going to, you're going to be able to gauge them maybe a little easier. Sure. Because, but just like, because you're going to get questions like that on your polygraph as well. And you did, you know, are you the type of person that ex police department, I'm using X as an example, ex police department wants to hire. Right. Okay. Do you, are you not only are you not a drug, you know, yes, maybe you've tried drugs in your life, but you haven't done it for 10 years. Okay. But you've never stolen anything over $50 in value. Um, you didn't falsify or withhold anything in your background. Right. But yeah, when you were 10, you stole a candy bar from a Turkey Hill. Should that disqualify you? Right. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it did, I wouldn't have been a cop. <laughs> but, but again, you get a sociopath that goes in there, you know, they, they have no... Well, you would hope that the background prior to that would neighbor, figure that out. Uh, what's up with your neighbor? Have you had any problems with him? Oh, I've seen dead dogs hanging from a string outside his window. But other than that, he's great. <laughs> he's great. He's quiet. All right. Hire that guy. <laughs> Anyways. Wow, man. We got on the tangent there about the polygraphs, but I, I, feel, I feel better. Good. I, I feel better. Kind of like yeah. the day that we, I, I polygraphed you, you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Deep breaths. Yeah. See, I... I uh, I think like, yeah, I just kind of, um, I thought it would be cool to have you on because I think a lot of people look at polygraphs kind of as like, uh, this like witchcraft type, like weird, you science know, mystic, fiction, not yeah. science, science fiction. Right. And, uh, so I was like, you know, having Chris on, cause Chris has explained it, explained it to me very well. I was like, I think it would be, it would be helpful. So, yeah. And I think that just like anything else. The more you know about it, the more you feel comfortable about it. And right. like I said, when you came into the room, although you had had one 20 years prior, yeah. you walked into the room nervous. By the time you were hooked up and ready to take the test, you had a lot more knowledge about what was going to happen than you right. did when you walked in the room. And you reminded me of a lot of stuff, sure. too. Like, I had forgotten a lot of stuff from back when I, when I first had it. But, um, but again, that's what I think what also makes a good polygraphist is somebody who... Again, I'm not there to be your friend. I'm not there to be your enemy. I am the neutral seeker of the truth. I'm here to make you comfortable. Right. Okay? Not nerved up and edgy. You're already doing that to yourself. I don't have to add on to that. Right. Okay? So that's why I started with the Martin thing when I first met you, because it made you smile. It made you laugh. It -hmm. made your chief laugh. And I think instantly, whatever major nerve might have dropped a level or two, because now you're smiling, you're laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, I think it's a good tool. Like, I don't think it should ever be taken out of, of uh, law enforcement, either for the in criminal investigation side or um, backgrounds. I mean, I do think it's a tool that's useful um, in employment backgrounds. Absolutely. And I wouldn't, I think the state police at one point dropped doing polygraphs. And realized that was a mistake. They probably. realized that was a big mistake and then they reinstituted them. Yeah. So that just goes to show you that the highest, you know, law enforcement agency in the state said, we're not going to do them anymore. And then realized how much of an asset they really were. And then right. they re-implemented them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Enough about polygraphs. I'm, I'm polygraphed out. Okay. Me too. <laughs> but well, real quick, before we get off, if, if uh, someone is listening to um, this episode and is in need of someone that does polygraphs, what, what's your website? What's your website? Uh, it's www.detectingthetruth.com. Okay. 
Perfect. Or they can just look up uh, Precision Polygraphs uh, on Facebook or whatever, and they can find me there as well. Cool. Cool. Chris is very good at them. Um, uh, he is he is sought after. He is uh, kept pretty busy. Um, so he does a good job with them, and he has a lot of training. You keep up with that training every year, I know, um, and uh, you take it seriously. So, uh, yeah. Let's uh let's go back. Let's go back to uh what was it 1990 when you got hired as a CSA? What what is a CSA for people who don't know? It is CSA stands for Community Service Aid. Okay. So basically when I got hired by the Lancaster City Police Department as a CSA, you are a civilian. You're not a sworn police officer, no badge, no gun. We were dispatchers. We dispatched our own calls. Okay. That was, was pre-Anthony Weaver. Yes. Okay. So we dispatched our own calls. So any call for a traffic accident, a burglary, it didn't go to county radio. It came directly to us in our, the old radio room. Now, was every department in the county dispatching their own calls or just- Except Lancaster City. I'm so sorry. Every call- Everybody went to county except us. Okay. Yep. Okay. They all had a microphone. You know, they all had a, a microphone in their- police station that they could reach cars. Right. But county radio dispatched everybody in the county except the city police had their own dispatchers. Okay. So I got hired as a dispatcher. So I would sit in the radio room, eight, 10, 12 hour shifts, answer the phone. We had little headsets and we had a, a, a board in front of us and calls would come in. They'd light up, hit the button, you know, Lancaster city police, CSA DePato. Um, we also had four designated 911 calls. Now, 911 was interesting. All 911 calls went to county dispatch. And if it was for Lancaster City, they transferred it to our police station. Okay. And back then, county radio was in the basement of the courthouse. That's oh, where wow. original county radio was, in the basement of the courthouse. Okay. So when I got hired, we did dispatching duties. We also had the house person. The house person handled all the prisoners that came in. And if you remember the old, were you there for the old police station? Yeah, I was at the old. Okay. So the old police station had the slating counter, you know, the Mm -hmm. little booking counter, the wooden thing. And you took their possessions, you put them in those wooden boxes underneath, filled out the arrest booking report. And we would take them back and put them in the cell. And if they needed fingerprinted, photographed, we did that as well. Right. And every now and then, if there were four CSAs working, somebody got to go out in a police car and drive around as a service unit and handle the non-emergency calls. The somebody broke the window in my car report or the illegal parking report. Do you remember what the coolest 911 call you ever got in there? So it, it, they, if someone called 911, it would go to dispatch, to county dispatch, mm-hmm. and then it'd come back to you. So then a, a CSA would answer that Correct. call. Yep. Um, I don't remember. Nothing ever really stuck out. No, I remember foot chases and vehicle pursuits were the hardest as a dispatcher because you're trying to listen to the direction and the descriptions. And you're, we used to have a clock that you would punch the clock. So if he blew a stop sign at Chestnut and Duke, oh, that was a red punch. light. That was a yeah, red yeah. light. Red light, Chestnut and Duke, punch it, red light. So that way when the officer came in, he knew the time of every single violation because you'd write next to it all the violations as they were calling them out. Wow. Wow. But it gave me a new respect for dispatchers because 
they only see and they only hear what's going on up until a certain point. Right. They get the phone call. Somebody's in my house. There's a burglar in my house. I can hear him. So you're dispatching officers and they're arriving. Okay. The officers are there. Stay on the line with me. And you're, you're doing this back and forth, talking on the radio to the cops, talking to the person on the phone. Right. It, it, but it was a fun job. Yeah. So when you got hired as a CSA, did, um, did you get hired knowing that you wanted to pursue being a police officer or did you get hired in that? And then as you did it, realize, Hey, maybe I want to be. No, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. When I was in college, I went to Kent state university in Ohio and I went on, I got a wrestling scholarship there. Well, after my first year, I was just burned out of wrestling. I had done it since second grade. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I lost my scholarship and I needed a part-time job. So I ended up getting a part-time job for the university police department as okay. a dispatcher. Okay. So on the times that I wasn't working, I could do ride-alongs with the officers. And I did. And there were two officers. One was Kevin Green, and I can't remember the other one's name. And I would ride along with them to handle calls and things like that. And that is where I fell in love with law enforcement. So, you, so then you, you kind of just fell into it then. Oh, yeah. Like, so up until that point, you didn't, when you were in high school or, or any point when you were a kid, you were like, oh, I'd be cool to be a cop, even when you were like a little kid? Nope. I wanted to be a pilot. Okay. I went to Kent State University to fly airplanes, and I did. I got my private pilot's license at Kent State during my freshman year. And I loved flying. I loved being up there. But when I lost my scholarship because I just didn't want to wrestle anymore, I... Flying was very expensive, part of the tuition. I couldn't afford that anymore. Took the part-time job just to make ends meet and for extra spending money at college. And that is my first introduction to law enforcement. Okay. At age, what, 19, 20? Okay. Now, do you still have your uh, private uh, no, license? No, I let it go. Do, would you ever do it again? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, my I, wife I, wouldn't go with me. My, my wife is deathly afraid of small airplanes. Really? <laughs> so she wouldn't go with me. but. I would do it again. I would love to do helicopters. Okay. I think if I was going to tackle anything here in the future, helicopters, just because there's yeah. flying's easy. Taking off is easy. Flying's easy. The hardest part is landing. Yeah. Flying a helicopter requires everything. Right. And I think that would be fun. Challenging. Yeah. I've always thought flying would be really cool. I was actually also interested in flying when I was in high school and I took a, like an aeronautics class okay. in high school. And, uh, I was like, I was, I, I I was a super driven high school student and I was like, I knew my plan. I was going to go in the air force. I was going to try to learn how to fly in the air force, get out, become a commercial pilot, all this and that. And then, uh, that all came crashing and burning to the ground when I realized how bad my eyes were. <laughs> this was, you know, these were the times 1988. This is all pre-internet pre, you know, right. If times were different, if I was brought up, not born in 1969, but say born in 1999, where I had the internet, I might have taken a different course. I might have graduated high school, gone to the military, done flight training there, because there they pay for all the hours. Right. But when you're 18 years old, back in 1988, you're not thinking like that. You're like, right. I'm going to go to college. I got a wrestling scholarship. I'm going to party, have a great time. You know, so yeah. it's a totally different lifestyle. But no, my, my first real introduction to law enforcement was that part-time job working at the college police department. And I think I was hooked within a couple months. What hooked you about it? Not every day was the same. Yeah. 
Okay, if you're flying airplanes, you're pretty much checking this, checking this, take off, fly, land. Oh, well, every day, I never knew when I answered that phone, was it going to be something like illegal parking or was it something really exciting? So every day being different, that's what drew me to it. Okay. Plus, I was an athlete. You know, you can't tell by the shape of me now. But uh, come on, Chris, you you could still get after it. Oh, no, I'm in shape and the shape is pear. (laughs) But you could still get after it. If we had to throw down right now, if someone broke into the house right now, you throw throw down. I'm I'm in with you. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. (laughs) But just the excitement, I think, you know, and and I was, I think that appealed to me more. Oh, hey, look, I wrestled for years. If I got to get into a fight on the street, I can ground fight. Yeah. I may not be able to box, but I can ground fight. So there was all kinds of things that led up to the fact that, hey, I think this is the career for me. Yeah. So when I left college after my second year, came back home, uh, I applied to the city police department as a CSA and the Lancaster County Prison as a CO. And I interviewed for both, got both jobs. But there was a lieutenant at the time, his name was Gary Roush. And he said to me, what's your, like you, like you just did, what's your overall goal? And I said, I want to be a police officer. He goes, you don't want to work at the prison. You want to work here because as a CSA, we can, if you take the text and you do well, we can hire you because we know who you are already. Right. Give you that kind of little preferential treatment, like military points or Mm -hmm. whatever. So as a CSA, I got the 10 extra points for being an employee there already. So that's how I got hired. Okay. And you were a CSA for like a year? Not even quite. Okay. I think I got hired as a CSA in July of 90 and then hired as a police officer in May of 91. All right. So like 10 months. And how long was the academy back then? Three months. Oh, man. Lucky. Oh, it was great days. <laughs> the fr- what? But you went to a different academy. You probably went to Reading. No. Did you go no, to Hack? I did go to oh, Hack. Oh, okay. What class were you? I mean, you? it was a joke. Uh, oh, man. Ah. 79th. Okay. We were the 50th. Yeah, 79th. And our academy was the first one that was five months, and it was brutal. It was brutal. But yeah, because you got the academy for five months, then you're still coming back and being an FTO for another, what, two, three? Yeah. For me, I, sh- I should have been an FTO a lot longer. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, you asked me earlier on, like when we filled out your, I filled out your, what my favorite job was. Yeah. FTO. I had two. I had K9 and FTO. Okay. But I think FTO won out over K9. So, um, yeah, so you you you've been in patrol, you've been K9, you've been drug suppression unit, you were up in detectives, but your favorite role was field training. Mm-hmm. Why? It's hard to label it as one thing. I know there are guys that I trained that would say, "Oh, he was he was mean, he was he treated me like crap, but what they, and you'll hear different things, yeah. but what they will all say is that they learned the right way to do things. There is a, I was tough on them. I wasn't their friend. I wasn't there to be their friend. I was there to teach them how to do the job. Right. And Aaron Harnish, Aaron, you know, he loves to eat and he doesn't look like he eats, but he eats. It's because right. he works out like a champ. But or his metabolism or a tapeworm or something. <laughs> but I wouldn't let him eat one day. We were so busy. He's like, hey, we got to stop. I got to get some food. I'm like, we don't have time. We're, we're hustling. We're moving. Right. And at one point we needed gas. 
So he's like, hey, if you pump it, I'll go in and I'll pay for it. I'm like, all right, here's, you know, remember we all had the credit cards. Here's the card. He said he went inside and he shoveled down like three hot dogs from those rolling machines (laughs) that could have been there for two days, but he didn't care because he was just so hungry. But you're teaching guys that are green, that are new, that don't know, all they know is what they learned in the academy. Right. And you're going to teach them how to be good police officers, how to do the job the right way way somebody that you would want to have your back on a call Mm -hmm. that you trust yeah so i taught them the right way to do things there is and i'm not going to mention his name but he'll again know who it is i was assigned to him i was his fto and i saw him in there two days before he was supposed to report and he's at the copy machine and he's and I, I walked past him, didn't acknowledge him because I knew I was going to be training him. So I didn't want to be like, hey, buddy, I want to become off a little hard assy, you know? Right. So I think I do the head nod and I keep walking. Two hours later, I come back into the station. He's still at the copy machine. So finally, I walked up to him and I said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, a couple guys gave me these cheat sheets. Remember the old cheat sheets yeah. for the vehicle code and crimes code and yeah. whatever? Mm-hmm. Ordinances, everything. Yeah. Somebody gave it to him and it was, I forget how many pages long and he's copying them and cutting them and making them into nice books for himself right. for his first day on the street. So come the first day of the street, um, roll calls over and anybody have anything? I said, Sergeant, I have something. I raised my hand. And like I said, you know, you guys all know me. This is my new uh, rookie. This is officer. So-and-so I have him stand up and, you know, I said, let me tell you about this young man. I said, he has dedication. He was in here two days ago for hours preparing these cheat sheet books. I said, do you, still, do you have them on you? He goes, yeah. I said, can I see them? I want to show everybody. So he hands them to me. And I look at them and I go, these are nice. And I show everybody. And I ripped them to shreds, tore them up, and I threw them into the trash can. And I said, maybe nobody told you I don't allow cheat sheets when I'm teaching somebody. He had a look of he either wanted to punch me or cry. <laughs> I don't know which. But to this day, if you ask him, he'll tell you, I'm glad I had to use the crimes code. I had to use the vehicle code. I had to use the books and look through and find them. You taught me the right way to do things. After you're out of training, use the cheat sheet. Right. But I'm going to teach you the right way to do things. Yeah. So I always thought molding new officers into being good officers that serve the community well was the most important job. Yeah, and I agree with you in many ways. I I enjoyed being an FTO. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was a lot of hard work. It is. Um, I I always uh, I had a I had a uh, issue with FTOs who just felt like, oh, this is a way for me to make a little extra money, right? Because uh, you get like they a get like an extra five percent or something. Uh, towards the end of my no, career, I, I think what? it was up to ten percent. Oh, was it? it I think was it was seven and a half when I did it. Yeah. Um. And, and who, who would just not take it seriously. I'm like, you know, you're, you know, or be overly friendly. And I wasn't a jerk. I, I didn't, I didn't do anything like ripping up anyone's stuff or anything like that. Um, I mean, I would, I would pull guys aside, you know, guys hated me by the time they were done with me because I was on them. And I, I, because I thought it was important to, uh, make sure that after every call we would debrief it. What did you do? Well, what do you need to work on? That type of stuff. And uh, there were times where I'd, you know, I'd go park and I'd say, what, what is your problem? 
Like, what is going on with you, you know? And, and uh, you know, put that pressure on them. Any level of pressure that I could put on them as an FTO was nothing um, compared to possible levels of pressure they would feel on the job. 100%. 100%. Right. I mean, there was nothing I could do as an FTO that could prepare them for certain things they would experience later on. Pulling would, up in the 300 block of South Queen Street at Strawberry in the middle of 50 people fighting. Right. That's stress. Showing up at a scene, having gunshots fired right. at the scene. Stuff like that. Me yelling at you is nothing compared to what right. you're going to see. And so, like, as I went on in my career, I started seeing a lot of FTOs be really, really friendly with their people, um, you know, uh, hanging out with them after work. And uh, I, I would tell my trainees when they got with me, listen, you have my number. You call me if you need anything. Uh, you will call me, Officer Weaver. You will call every other officer on the shift, officer or sergeant, or you will not call them by their first name and you will not call them by just their last name. I'm like, it's just my rule when you're with me. And so like things like that, you know, and, and I would, I, you know, I just thought it was a very important, important job. And then when I got promoted to sergeant and on the shift I was on, I was in charge of our FTO program. And I, I told those guys, I'm like, listen, I sincerely believe that what you guys do being field training officers is quite possibly the most important job in the police department. And I believe 100% that it is. Having done a lot of jobs, I think that FTO is probably the most important because you are producing police officers for the future that they're going to be FTOs and they're going to know how to train people to do the job the right way. Did I do everything right as an FTO? No. I yelled at people in front of me that I probably shouldn't have yelled at or did things I shouldn't have done, but that was the do as I say, not as I do. You'll, you know, you'll figure things out as you go along. But what I always told my trainees, I think back then we rotated like once a month, you'd have Anthony Weaver. The next month you'd have Chris Tapato. The next month you'd have Dave Weiser, somebody, you know, I told all my guys, take what you like from Anthony and disregard what you didn't like. Take what you like from me and disregard what you don't like from me. And take what you like from Dave and disregard, you know, make that your own style. Right. I like how Anthony handled this, but I like how Chris did this, but you make that your style. Right. Yeah. Take the good of everything that you've learned, get rid of the bad and make it your own style of police officer. Yeah. And regardless of how good your uh, field training officers are, that's what every officer does. Comes on and sometimes you're with an FTO that is absolute garbage. And sometimes you're with one that's really good, but you still would do stuff a little different. Or even as a seasoned officer, I saw how you handled something. I'm like, I like that approach. Right. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. Right. Yeah. So we all do it. I mean, it's. It's, it's how you, it's how you grow and get better, uh, in the job. Um, which one of your roles, like, so FTO was your favorite, Mm -hmm. which one of your roles weighed on you the most? Um, oh, that's easy. Sex crimes, sex crimes detective. And how long did you do that? 10 years, probably five years too long. Five years too long. Yeah. I probably should have left after five. Why do you say it? A lot of stress with that job. Okay. And I think it affects everybody differently. Um, I've been busting Gary Lowe's chops, but he's a heck of an investigator. Mm-hmm. He really is. And he's been doing it a long time. Yeah, he has. And maybe it affects him differently than it did me, but I took a lot of that home with me. 
you know, when you're dealing with children and well, I always called it true victims. Okay. If you have somebody that was sexually abused or physically abused and they're a child or a minor or, you know, what a woman that was just crushed by a man for no reason other than he was angry that dinner wasn't on the plate that night. Right. Those are true victims. But the ones with minors with children, they affected me the most. And I would often have horrible nightmares and dreams. And it led to some bad personal behavior on my end that I should have gotten out. I think Jared, Jared Berkeheiser, he recognized it in me at one point. I think, are you okay if you need to talk to somebody? You know, because it does get to you after a while. Right. Yeah. When you're dealing with children and their deaths, it's just brutal. The the cases with with uh, kids and and uh, you know child homicides. That would you say those cases or one of those cases in particular is the one that like affected you the most or or just bothers you to this day? There, I would say all homicides involving children bothered me and still bother me to this day. Um, there's two cases that I still kind of live with. Um, one was actually not as a detective, though. It was when I was canine. Okay. Um, bad snowstorm, Hershey Avenue. Call for a child in distress, newborn in distress, not breathing. I happened to be close, but it was... Do you remember the old cars? They had put the chains on the tires. Mm-hmm. And, my chains weren't working right. One was flapping around. I think I could only drive like five miles an hour, you know, but I finally got to the house and I was there before the ambulance. The mom comes running out, holding the baby, not breathing blue. We go back inside where it's warm and I start doing the chest compressions and trying to breathe in through the whole nose, mouth, you know, the, right. how we were taught. We were all taught infant CPR. Right. And I'm doing that for a while. Finally, after what feels like forever, the ambulance gets there. I, they're only a two-man crew. So they ask me to drive the ambulance while they work on the baby in the back. So I left my car and my dog at the scene, driving the ambulance in a blizzard up to LGH. So you think Hershey Avenue down by Turkey Hill. Yep. All the way up to LGH. And we get there. Baby doesn't make it. I'm standing by with the body. Detectives come in, do their thing. Next thing you know, the funeral home comes in. And they don't have a gurney. They don't have a body bag. They have an old, looks like a toolbox. It's a wooden, old wooden toolbox. Hmm. And that's what they were going to put the baby in. I raised a fit. I yelled, I swore because I was upset that right. this baby had died. I felt it was my fault. I didn't get to the hospital fast enough. My CPR wasn't good, good enough. enough. Right. And I swore at the, these people, God love them. They're doing, they have a job to do the funeral right. home, but I'm like, you're not putting this precious baby into this toolbox right. to carry it out of here. Like it's nothing. So I wrapped the baby up as tight as I could. I carried it out to the hearse. Okay. I wasn't going to let it go in that toolbox. Right. So that still bothers me to this day. Do you, re- do you regret carrying the baby out? Nope. Do you feel, okay. Nope, I don't regret it. Need- and I have come to learn I didn't do anything wrong. 
but back then and for a long time you live with that right because you you're you think well if i would have done this maybe this right. and then- what if i would have gotten in the baby in the car right away instead of waiting for the ambulance right you play different scenarios over in your head you set your monday morning quarterback Everybody says that about law enforcement. We have split seconds to make decisions where other people can Monday morning quarterback that for months and years to come. Right. So that weighed heavily on me. The other one was, um, were you there a part of it? I don't remember. I know McFarlane was. 406408 in St. Joseph Street back in the day. The kids that, there were kids and two elderly disabled women that were locked in a basement, kept in a basement to live. No. I, 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 Vaguely remember the case, but I wasn't, I wasn't there. Yeah, that was my case. That was horrific. Yeah. That one still haunts me to this day as well. Yeah. But a lot of other child deaths do, you know, things that we've, you know, floors, you're, you're walking through a house looking for a guy with a machete after he hatched it up his family and you're sliding and you can't figure out why and you look down and it's blood. Right. You know, those things just. They don't go away. They never go away. Right. You can just and you try to suppress them, right? And try to not think about them. But you see something on TV, you're watching a show on TV, and yep. it's this is you know it's all fictional, or I'm sorry, nonfiction. I'm, no, fiction, fiction. But it's but it reminds you of something you dealt with, right? In 25 years working for a city police department, you've pretty much, and even as a detective, you've seen everything, right? There's not much you haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, I. uh was that the one and only time you had to drive an ambulance for? No, I've had to do it before. I've had yeah. to do it on other occasions, but not for minor, not for a, a baby. Okay. I, uh, so we're, we're sitting here, we're talking about how certain things remind you of certain things mm-hmm. or, you know, you never forget. When you said that, how you drove the ambulance to the hospital, it reminded me of a call I was on um, that I'll never forget. It was a lady... I think this might have been Detective. This might have been Moon Mall's case. I, I'm trying to remember the detective. You, you'll probably um, know. Uh, a lady was beaten and raped in uh, Musser Park to the point where she, as far as I know, last time I knew, she was still basically in a uh in a hospital like she's basically in a home yeah i think that was mumal she can't take care of herself i was the first arriving person at that call first arriving officer at that call and uh she was uh or one of the first um she was by a picnic table in the park she was um partially naked i think from the waist down if i remember right and um she i mean it was the worst beating i'd ever seen like this lady was just completely pulverized. And uh, there was a guy who would always walk Chestnut Street. Um, I recognized him. And when I saw him walk past the scene uh, while EMS was there working on her, I quick went up to him and I said, um, did you, did you, see? I, I said, did you walk past here earlier? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I said, did you see the woman here? He's like, yeah, I did. And I said, I was like flabbergasted. I was like, did you call 911? Like, he's like, oh no, I figured someone else would call. Chris, I'll tell you to this day, I could have killed that guy right then and there. Yep. I thought about it. I was like, I could literally grab this guy by the throat and just like kill him right now. 
because I could not believe that he had walked past someone, saw them, told me he saw them, saw that they were in bad shape, and did nothing. Well, that's just like sitting across the table from a guy who just admitted to uh, raping an old lady or a child. I go, you're not a monster. You didn't do this because you're a monster, did you? You did this because you have urges, right? And, you know, it was it was a spur of the moment thing. Yeah, that's what it was. And I, I you know, I, I feel bad about. It. I'm not a monster. And meanwhile, in my mind, I'm choking them out. Right. Yeah. You know, because you are a monster. You did this to a ten year old child. Right. But the public doesn't know that. They just see what they read in the newspaper. They don't know the it's steps nice. that it takes to get there. It's white, nice white and black ink. Right. You know. Right. And and uh, but the the reason I remember the reason why that story reminded me of that is because they loaded that lady up. There were three of them in the back of the ambulance working on her. Three of them, and I had to drive the ambulance to the hospital. But I just remember talking to that guy, and I was like, I I literally was like, I could. Again, I never felt like that before, where I literally felt like I could kill this person standing in front of me right now. You, you never know what it is that's going to trigger that memory. Right. Like I said, it could be a television show. It could be something Lauren says. Okay, it could be something. You don't know where you are, where you're going to be, but something happens and it triggers a memory. Hopefully a good one, but with what stuff that we did, it's not always good. Right. To this day, the night before Thanksgiving, I always get sad. Why? Because a lot of people don't, the general public mostly don't realize the night before Thanksgiving is probably the biggest party night of the entire year. A lot of people think it's New Year's Eve, but it's the night before Thanksgiving because right. everybody comes home from college. Yep. The first fatal accident I ever went to. Car wrapped around a tree in Lancaster Township. I was the first one. I was the township car that night. I get there. Driver's already dead. Passenger's alive. Barely. I'm holding his hand. He's trapped inside the car. Beer can between his legs. And he's just, tell my parents I love them. And he died in my hands. Yeah. So I, ne- I, I didn't make the notification. But to this right. day, that's what I think that- the night before Thanksgiving triggers that memory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a wild thing. Um, now, you shared uh, with me before that, you know, early in your career, at least. Um, you were, your, your mom was a teacher and you were involved in talking to students. Is that something that you did your whole career or just at the beginning of your career? And did that help you, uh, just maintain some humanity and, and the ability to kind of keep things in perspective? Well, did, let me ask you a question before I answer yours. When you were younger and you were in elementary school, did a police officer ever come in and talk to your class? Do you remember I, ever seeing a police I, officer come in and No, I I don't. Okay. I remembered it when I was younger. Uh the I grew up in Mannheim Borough. Small area. Uh, the chief of police at the time was the father of one of my classmates, Chief Winters. Okay. Um his daughter Karina and I grew up together. So he would come in and do the officer friendly, you know. And that's what I I remember that as a child and that's my mother being a teacher and I would go into her classroom and some of her other teachers and, you know, I'm officer DePato and, you know, do you know your name? Do you know your address? What number do you call if there's an emergency? You know, do you talk to strangers? You know, the whole officer friendly deal. And I loved, I loved doing it. I really did because kids would get a kick out of it. But whenever it came time, came time for questions, 
everybody would raise their hand. And what was the number one question? Did you ever shoot anybody? Can I see your gun? <laughs> yeah. You know, I would take my handcuffs out and pass them around. Kids loved it, you know, right. or things like that. And um, so that to me was fun. And right. then I actually did older kids. I spoke to high school kids. I went back to my high school where I graduated from, Hemfield. And I had a teacher, Rebecca Wetzel. Now, she was never my teacher. Right. But I, I think my girlfriend at the time had her in class, and I got to know the teacher through that. And she would have me come in and talk about law enforcement and the different sides of law and, and uh, criminal rules, criminal procedures, things of that nature. And I did all that. Uh, I did some stuff at college level. But when I went to like the narcotics unit, we would go and do presentations on drugs. There was an old drug kit that we had, and John Burkhardt and I would go to the Kiwanis Club and talk to the Kiwanians. I don't know if I'm, that's the correct plural, but whatever. <laughs> the Kiwanis members. Okay. And we would put on a presentation, and they would have us for dinner and things like that. So, yeah, I always did public speaking. I, I never had a problem with that. Yeah. Again, I'm not one for in the front of camera or in the front of people, but when it's smaller crowds, like young kids, and you're talking about something that you're well-versed in, it became easy. And do you, do you think doing stuff like that, uh, helped you in any way? Like just maintain your, your, well, sure. It was great community. I think we, I was doing community policing before community policing was the cliche catchphrase. Yeah. You know, I was going into classes and meeting with people and I would stop into businesses and drink a cup of coffee while talking to the owner. Right. But back then that's what I was taught to do. Right. That was before we ever had guys on bikes mm -hmm. and things like that, you know? That's how you that was met part people. Of the job. Right. But that's how you met people. And, right. and eventually that stuff worked <clears throat> out for me. I remember there was a guy, a uh, big dude, and he was a bouncer at one of the nightclubs, a couple of the nightclubs, actually. And he and I got along great. Every time I saw him, shook his hand, we'd do the bro hug, you know, how you doing? Mm -hmm. So on and so forth. But he had a problem with, with women. He liked to assault his significant others. But he was a big dude. And we're talking like 6'5", 280. Yeah. Muscular, like built. Whenever the cops were called on him, he'd be like, is DePato working? And if I was, they'd be like, yeah, have him come over. Only he can arrest me. Because he'd fight the other guys. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. a bad dude, but he just didn't like, he wanted me to be the one to cuff him. Right. Because of the relationship we built. Mm -hmm. I still had a job to do. I still had to arrest him, take him into the police station. But he knew that he was going to be treated with respect. Right. Yeah. So I think it did help. I think some of those community relationships, you know, how many times did somebody talk to you that wouldn't talk to somebody else because mm -hmm. they knew Anthony Weaver, they knew he was a good guy, and that you would do something with that information. You wouldn't rat them, you know, you wouldn't divulge their name if they didn't want it. Yeah. But you would make sure the information got passed along. Yeah. Yeah. Because of a relationship you built. It could have been somebody you arrested, but you treated them like a man. Yeah. Treated them like a person, not a POS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, like later on in my career, I, and for several years now and still continuing, I go into, uh, Lancaster Bible College and I talk to a criminal justice class in there, uh, every semester. And, uh, I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Have you it, ever had somebody that you taught that used your name as a reference on an application? Uh, not yet to, that I know of. I've had it happen a couple of times. That somebody called me, hey, do you know uh, Bill Smith? And I'd be like, no. no. <laughs> well, he says he knows you. Apparently, you came into his class and gave him your card. And I'm like, 
Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I maybe know of him, but I right. don't know, know him, him, but they still use my name as a reference. Right. Yeah. That hasn't happened to me yet, but, um, I'm, I'm sure it will. Cause I've talked to several college, uh, a lot of college students. And I, I do think like talking to college students is I enjoy that more than talking to young, young kids because college students, it's so interesting. You'll go in, they're in criminal justice. And you'll start talking to them and giving them real life. And you start seeing light bulbs go off like, oh, okay. Like, you know. But do you ever get the negative from them? Do you ever get the, like, some of the current climate that we have now as it relates to law enforcement and the perception of law enforcement? I, do they ever come at you that at that angle? I have. Um, but I, I uh, yes, I have. Uh, but... I kind of enjoy that. Like, I kind of enjoy that, like, debate banter. And I'm also, like, brutally honest with people. With, and, like, I think that's the thing I like a little more because I already was pulled in. Actually, you know what? I think you might have been involved in this. Oh, here's a you, light bulb moment. You pulled, you, I think it was you who pulled me in to talk to some young uh, kids, like a, a, uh, a troop of, um, uh, oh, what do they call them? Like Girl Scouts and Boy, Boy Scouts? Scouts. Thank you. Cub Scouts. Cub Scouts. It was young. And I was in the lobby of the police station. I was in SEU. I think it might have been you. You were just like, hey, come talk to these kids. Tell them what SEU does. Had never talked to a group of young kids before in my life, ever. Didn't have any kids. So I go in there completely blind. And I'll never, ever forget was this you? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, uh, I'm telling them what selective enforcement unit does. Like we do a lot of like undercover. Officer Weaver, drug- what's a hoe? <laughs> so like, we do a lot of undercover drug, uh, drug stuff. And I was like, we also do a lot of prostitution work. And as soon as I said prostitution, the air got sucked out of the room. And I realized I was talking to like five-year-olds. And Chris, you were what's like, what's a trick? Chris was like, just get out. <laughs> and later on, we were joking about how these five-year-olds were probably going home. Hey, mommy, daddy, what's a prostitute? <laughs> You're never going to that police department again. <laughs> Devada was like, I will never ask you to talk to any no, small that, children I probably again. did it to more for having fun with you, put you on the spot. Yeah, I probably regret that decision. <laughs> Live and learn. Yeah. Oh, I regretted it for sure. But we also do fun stuff. I remember Adam Dommel and I, I would dress up every year as Santa Claus for the LCPD kids Christmas party. A couple years I'd put on the the Christmas suit and we would drive around the city. I would buy with my own money, like $200 worth of candy canes. And we would drive around and give candy canes to the kids out of the cruiser. You know what I mean? Just stuff like that. I, I loved getting younger people to realize there are good police officers. Yes, you were always, when I was taught young, if you're lost or whatever, look for a police officer. Police officers are your friends, you know? Um, yeah. I remember my mom getting pulled over and, and me crying and her telling me, look, I, I ran that red light back there. I did something wrong. He's here to make sure, you know. So I always lived by that. I lived by the fact that police officers are good people. Kids need to look up to them as somebody that they can go to for help. And that's what I wanted to continue that. Right. That tradition, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's done best organically, just on the street, like on your own volition. 
you know, getting in the stores. Wave getting, hi to people. Don't just drive by and put be, your and, window down. Yeah, mean mug somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, how you doing? You know, right. and if yeah, you never know what's going to certain happen. people you mean mug. Well, yes. Certain, but we know who those were. Known, yeah, you, you're certain known criminals. You would you would mean mean mug. I always loved when I was getting mean mugged back. This happened like three times in my career, where I was getting mean mugged, and I didn't even start mean mug. Like I didn't even know who the person was. I'm just driving past, and I look over, and the person's just like mean mugging me, and they walk into a street sign, slam on the brakes, laugh hysterically at them, point and laugh. <laughs> Um, but could you, like, which isn't very professional, but does your current department have body cams? Yes. Okay. I don't know that I could wear a body cam. <laughs> At least thank God we didn't back in the day. You oh know, yeah. I, I, mean, I told this to my wife. I've said to my wife, thank God there weren't cell phone cameras. There weren't cameras everywhere because I didn't always talk to people the best way. I said, now I considered myself a good police officer. I right. tried to treat, but there are times if you're talking to me a certain way, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to win. Yeah, you're going to, I'm going to win on the street. I can't lose on the street. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of that has to do too with, um, you know, and I think I've talked about this before on the podcast that people generally want, they, they know what they want police to do. They know like we, we want them to deal with uh, the criminal element, but they don't really want to know what it looks like. And they don't really want to see it because when they know what it looks like and when they see it and when they see how gritty it is, um, it makes them uncomfortable. Well, that goes back to the sausage metaphor that I gave you earlier. Right. People like sausage. They don't want to see what's in it or how it's made. Right. But they like the end result. Yeah. So it takes a lot. Bad guys don't have to follow rules. The good guys have to follow rules. So why can't they just arrest that guy? Well, we need to do things a certain way. It's not going to happen at the snap of a finger. Right. And then when you mesh bad guys with good guys and you, you have use of force or violence and stuff, people are like, Ooh, that, that, look, that didn't look good. So it must be wrong. And so, you know, again, the body cams, in some ways, I think body cams have helped the profession. In some ways, I think they have harmed the profession because I think they, at times, uh, officers uh, don't maybe do what needs to be done for fear of perception. Well, I don't think that's just body cameras. I think it's cameras in general. And I think it's World Star and YouTube and everybody trying to catch somebody's worst 15 seconds. Right. And putting it out there for the world to see. And certain people, I, I might even be one of them. I don't know. I don't want to be somebody's internet meme. Right. Yeah. Or you know, and, that a or, guy from Wisconsin is commenting on who has no idea about what happened. Right. Has no idea what he's looking at. Has no idea he's of the context. A 15 second clip, not the two minutes that led up to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's frustrating. It's a, it's a frustrating part of the job right now. So. Um, well, that's why I said, you know, hats off to you that you still want to go back and do it. But I think where you are policing now versus where you came from, it's a totally different type it of is. atmosphere. It is. And, 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 uh, you know, I think, um, you know, there's, yeah, and I'm a different person too. Yeah. I've, you know, I've, you know, yeah. I still feel like in some way I'm still 
a part of the process. I'm just right. not wearing a badge and a gun doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm handling things on the probation level and treatment level and hiring of, of, you know, I'm a part of hiring good police officers to continue that legacy of law enforcement, you know, of good, honest people doing the job. So I still feel a, a part of it without being directly in it. And I think that's helpful. I, I think that is helpful for some guys when they retire to feel like they're still part of law enforcement in some way. So, you know, for you, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to see doing the polygraphs. For me, my year off, I was a store manager, but I was doing the podcast. So I still was in the world. I was still having conversations with guys. It kept me, it kept me connected a little bit. How was that year for you? Awesome. Did you miss any part of it? I missed, um, some people. Okay. So like I, I, uh, but the cool thing about working in, at the, at Ellicott and company, it was in the city. So I had a lot of like city guys that I knew city officers that I knew stopping in to talk to me nice. every week. So that was helpful for me. Um, I are definitely out of the loop. When you leave that building, you are out of that. You're loop. done. You're, yeah. You're and that not, takes a while to get, used, get out of your system. Right. I'd wake up in the morning, first week after I retired, I'd wake up and I'd see the news and there was a shooting or stabbing. I'd look on my phone, try to look for the email about what, and I'd be like, oh, I'm not going to get those anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really weird. Like one day you're a cop, the next day you're not. And then in my case, the, one day you're not a cop and then the next day you are again. And you're like, would you want your kids to get into law enforcement? Uh, that's a really good question. Who's doing this interview, by the way? You're like asking me questions. Um <laughs> I haven't put a lot of thought into it. I mean, my kids are eight and six. Right. Um, I think I would be extremely proud, but I think there would be a lot of hard conversations. Now, I don't know. My daughter never was interested in it. My son, though, was interested at one point, I, I believe. So he wanted to do a career shadow day with me. So we picked out a day. I was in detectives, came in, it was the whole day with me. So we drove around, I showed him some things, took him to different places, showed him, we met with judges in the courthouse, you know, and showed him the courtrooms. And right at lunchtime, we went to Southern Market. It was a market day. I think it was a mm -hmm. Friday. Went down to Southern Market, got food, walked back. We get a call while we're eating lunch of a police officer getting shot. I didn't know what to do. I have my... I think he was about 14 or 15 year old son in the conference room. I know I've got to leave. I know I'm not taking him with me. Right. So our assistant in CID, Mindy, I yell at her, watch him, you know, have right. him stay with you. I run to my desk, throw my vest over my, my body, grab my stuff, and I run out the stairwell that leads to... Market Street, mm -hmm. right by the House of Pizza. I run out. I'm looking for any cruiser that's going, because this incident happened just three blocks, four blocks away on Chestnut right. Street by Musser Park. No cruisers are coming past Chestnut Street. I stop a truck in the middle of the street. I jump in the back of it. I, I did hear this story. I commandeered a vehicle. It was like law enforcement bucket list. It was like right. lethal weapon. You know, you're... I didn't yank anybody out of the car. I just jumped in the back and I'm pounding on the roof. Go, go, go. And we're driving up Chestnut Street. He's running red lights. I'm telling him to go through red lights. And we get there. 
and we handle the situation. You know, everything's what it is. Finally get back to the police station. I can't find my son. The, the assistant's gone. Can't find her. Can't find my son. Turns out he was up in uh, drug task force with John Burkhart hanging out with him. Okay. Because John and I used to be roommates. So John knew my son very well. So that was my son's introduction to law enforcement was his career shadow day seeing, not really seeing the police officer get shot, but being there when a police officer from my, my department right. gets shot. And I think that was like, mm, maybe I don't want to do this. Yeah. Wow. That's, in, that's, that's wild. I didn't realize your son was with you. I had heard about you commandeering a vehicle. It was awesome. There's a lot of, lot, of, lot of stories about that. Like, what, what that is- guy in the back of a truck. <laughs> uh, did you ever talk to that guy? The yeah, guy in the you, tr- you know who he is? He's the owner of the Horse Inn. Oh, no kidding. I went up to, I, I found that out a couple days later, I think. And I drove up there and I shook his hand and thanked him. And he gave me a hug and said, anytime you want to come in for dinner, please let me know. That, you know, you guys do a great job. And I saw the look in your eye when I pulled up and you were flagging me down and you were determined. And I said, oh, I, I knew I had to get where I needed yeah. to be. So, so he knew like... What he took you to then? Eventually, not okay. at that moment, but right. eventually he learned what had happened because isn't the horse in is just another couple blocks yeah. up, yeah, off of Chestnut. So, uh, can you imagine the story when he got to work? You're never going to believe this. This detective came out, jumped well, in the back was funny, of the truck. Social media, you know, the story ended up hitting Facebook, and I think there was no picture of it, but somebody had commented, I saw this cop riding in the back of a truck and it was the most awesome thing I've ever seen. And then there were other people commenting after it. And I was like, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now you do get to do some uh, cool stuff on the job oh, you that me? no great. one, no one ever gets a chance to do. No, like I said, that, that was a, like a law enforcement bucket list item. Yeah. I'm commandeering never, a vehicle. I've never commandeered a vehicle. <laughs> it's good stuff. So much fun. <laughs> I, I haven't reached uh, that status yet of commandeering oh, but a vehicle. You have more opportunity now. Uh, you're y- back in the game. Yes, but I'm also wearing a body camera. So, well, as long as you're commandeering <laughs> the vehicle for the right reason, you're just not stealing a vehicle. I think you'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my wife did a ride along one time, and uh, she, uh, a friend of her, hers convinced her to do it. I was not so sure. She did it, um, and she never did another one again. Yeah, and I don't think ride-alongs are so bad. I remember guys, wives, or girlfriends getting scanners mm. to listen to yeah, their significant... Yeah, I feel like that's a bad idea. It's a horrible idea, because all you're hearing is the sounds. You know, you're not... Right. You don't know what happened. Like, hey, I'm getting out foot pursuit. And then they're like, uh, you know, 4268 code one. 4268 code you're not answering. Like, right. they're at home panicking. What happened to him? Is he right. laying in the street somewhere? You know, yeah. he or she laying in the street somewhere. Scanners are a bad idea. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, yeah, so you, you mentioned, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, wears on you and, and everything. Is there, do you feel like throughout your career, and you can get into this as much as you want to or not want to, um, you did a good job handling that stress and handing, handling the wear and tear of the job or a poor job or a little bit of both. Like I said, I think I stayed in, in SIU about five years too long. Um, that is, it's a tough job. Right. You know, when you're dealing with children and minors and the physical and sexual abuse, you can only, you know, I think a normal person can only handle so much of that. And anybody that can handle it for an, a, 
a good bit of their career, hats off to them. But no, it didn't, I was doing great for a long time. And then I would have bad dreams, nightmares a lot. Um, and I didn't handle it the right way at all. Um, I think I just kept to myself too much. Mm-hmm. I wasn't as friendly. With others, especially having kids, I was very suspicious of others. If we're at, if I'm at my son's baseball game and there's a guy sitting off to the side with a camera, is he taking pictures of my kid or these other kids? I haven't seen him clap for any one kid or a kid come up going, "Hey, Dad" or "Uncle Bill." Right. You know, I used to have an app on my phone that would tell me all the registered sex offenders, and it would use the GPS. So if I was at the beach, I'd constantly be looking. I shouldn't be doing that. I should be on vacation. I should be enjoying my time, but I wasn't. Right. So that thing, you know, that kind of thing wears on you. And I think I just got to the point where I, you know, I started drinking too much and it helped me. It was a temporary solution to a bad problem. Right. Okay. And eventually it just caught up with me to the point where uh, it was really affecting work and home and everything else. and. Since then, I mean, I dealt with it mm-hmm. and things have been much better. Yeah. I mean, I'm the, probably the happiest I've ever been with my wife and my kids and my whole life in general. I'm, I'm a new me. Yeah. Now, I still have the bad dreams, but I deal with them differently. I'm yeah. not involved with it anymore. And I'm still doing sex cases when it comes to the sex offender polygraphs. I'm just, I don't know the victims. They're, they're faceless names yeah i know the horrific crime that happened i just never met the victim as i did when i was a detective doing those cases i met the victim i met their families i you know just most recently you know i i told you i met with a family a a young man who he was burned over 70 percent of his body when he was 15 months old right and that was a horrific crime and I stayed with him in the hospital for a couple of days, you know, down in DuPont. Yeah. And uh, charged his biological mother for intentionally burning him. She got convicted, went to jail, moved on to the next case. Here I am retired five years and I get a phone call at eight o'clock at night. And it's, it's this young man. He's like, hey, are you Detective DePato? And I'm like, nobody's called me that in five <laughs> years. I said, but I was. How can I help you? And, Oh, my name's, you know, Tony, and you handled my case. And I go, "Mm, what do you mean? And he started telling me about the case. And I said, Anthony, I remember you. Right. And here he wondered, you know, for a long time who I was. And finally, one night he went on the internet with my name and found my business and my cell phone number. And he called me. I ended up having, you know, I invited Todd Kreiner, who was an assistant district attorney at at the time. We met him and his family for dinner. We both brought our wives. We all sat down for dinner, and it was an amazing experience. Five years after I retired, this young man still wanted to reach out. Five years after you retired, and what, like 15 years? Yeah. After this? 15 years after the incident. Wow. That just goes to show you we do good work. You know, people remember the goodness in us, even if it takes. 15 years later to somebody to reach out, you, you know, you affected that person's life and they're living their best life right now because you helped them a long time ago. Right. So that, that for all the bad things that happened to me and the way I felt about things, when things like that happen, it's such a good thing. Right. 
And and that um, I mean that story is incredible. You had you had put something out on social media about it. I saw it. It was incredible. I actually highlighted it um, in season one. Um, I think the final episode of season one, and uh, such an incredible story. And those types of things you just don't hear very much as a police officer. You mainly, you, you know, you may even help a victim and and do some good work, and then you're on to the next case, and you never really have those those follow ups or or know what happened to that person or how they're doing. And if you're like me, there was a couple couple incidents I was involved in where I thought about going back and trying to find the victims and just checking in with them, and I was like. I think it's better that I just remember them how they were in that moment because I was afraid if I went back, I'd find out now they're in and been in and out of jail and out of prison, you know, doing, doing terrible things themselves. Yeah, I so was, I just kind of stayed away from it. Things will happen if it's, if it's God's will for it to happen. I think it happens. You know, right. my wife, my wife says this all the time. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. If it's not, it's not. So this incident with this young man calling me, it, it was just, divineness. I mean, he reached out to me. He felt that moment. You know, I, I was out at the mall a couple of years ago and two girls walked up to me and they're like, do you remember me? And it'd been, I don't know, seven, eight years and you handled our sex case and, and we're so oh, wow. on, so on. And I'm like, oh my God. And they gave me a hug and, you know, we, we, we didn't get together for dinner like I did with this person, right. but still they remembered me. Yeah. And gave me a hug and thanked me and I mean that's you know, super they're doing cool. great there in college right so it's like awesome. you so yeah. if things are meant to happen I think I, I don't know that I would ever reach out to somebody but I think things will happen organically if they're meant to yeah yeah no and now that you're back wearing a badge you don't know who you're going to run into you right. go to the courthouse or something maybe you run into somebody you yeah. know you, you don't know yeah and I think like over the years um you you get like uh hardened and very cynical and I think for me, it was good to have a year off. And I just, I felt like I gained a little bit of my humanity back so that I could maybe jump back in and do maybe a, a little better job than I. That's the on. bad part of the job. Yeah. Your heart tends, you know, it's like the Grinch. It gets a little bit smaller. It gets a little bit harder. <laughs> right. You know, um, it doesn't mean I have the, in, the inability to love. I do. I love right. my children. I love my wife very much. I love my family. Um, it's just very easy, but to, when it comes to death, right? Here's an, you know, if a good friend would die, I don't know that I would cry. Yeah. I can get emotional about certain things, but when it comes to things that we dealt with, that we had to put on that, that mask of toughness or, or, you know, or you, you can't just show can't. that it's getting to us because you, you got a job to do. Correct. That follows into your private life. Right. And yeah, it, it, it yeah. hurts. Yeah. And and I can completely, um, well, I don't want to say completely relate to you, Chris, but you know some of the some of the struggles you had in your career, I definitely can. But you were the, I'm sure, the first responder to many horrible scenes. Yeah, and I can, I can, yeah. There were there were there's, things. There's in my, levels, but we've all seen it. Yeah, and, and been immersed, immersed. You know, look at the one that they just solved recently. Remember the. Um, the baby that was found in the mm-hmm. dumpster outside the y, the old YMCA. I think you were involved in that case. I was. As well. I was very much involved in it. You know, the news right. clippings are showing me a much slender, you know, right. non-gray version of myself. And my wife's, is that you? And I was like in the kitchen. I turn around. And I go, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And here, News Eight was showing old clips of it. Well, they finally caught that killer. You yeah. Know, that was 
Sonia Stebbins's case for a while, mm-hmm. Steve Skiles, they've all gone away. And right. I think uh, Randy Zook. He did a great job. Phenomenal job. Oh, yeah. my God. The legwork he must have done using the uh, DNA, the thing that yeah. did the uh, Christy Mirak and mm-hmm. uh, Ray Rowe. Yeah. Yeah, he put a ton of work he into that. He put a ton of legwork into that. And I, I remember sending him a text message at some point after seeing it. And it was just like, phenomenal job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, great job, Zookie. Yeah, that's great. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think uh, it's important. I appreciate you being vulnerable and, and sharing some of, hey, I made some mistakes. I got, got my- We said at the beginning, we're all flawed. Got my act together, you know, yep. and I'm glad you're doing well. And I'm glad that you're uh, retired from it, law enforcement anyway. <laughs> Retired-ish. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an awesome job. But there, there, it's just there's a lot of weight to it, and and I think one of the one of my goals on the podcast is to have guys on like you, um, and and like a lot of the other officers I've had on, to just talk, like maybe even talk about stuff that they haven't really been talking about at all or ever or rarely. That's what cops do best when we get together. We tell right. old war stories and and things that made us laugh, or not so much the things that made us cry or made us you know right. Or, hit us on the inside. And, and I think this is a good opportunity to bring out some of those things that cops are people too. You know, there's no, you know, bulletproof body. When you, once you put on that uniform, you know, we're subject to the same emotions and feelings that every, you know, when I say we, I mean, law enforcement, uh, are subject to the same emotions and feelings that everybody else has. Right. We're no different because we wear a badge and a, and a gun and go out and, and do that job. But it, yes, everybody says, oh, well, that's what they signed up to do. Sure. But it doesn't mean it doesn't affect us. Right. You know, or affect the men and women doing it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now, especially now, I don't know, um, especially in urban, urban departments, big I don't, cities. I do not know how they're doing it. I Portland, Oregon, yeah. you know, some Chicago of those. Chicago right now. Yep. Insane. Some of the stuff coming out of Chicago. Um, and, uh, which I'm probably going to talk about later in this episode, but it's, it's, it's an, it's incredible, but I am so thankful you came on. Appreciate it. There's so much, so much more stuff we could have talked about. I'm looking at my outline. I'm like, well, we missed that. We missed that, but you know, whatever. Um, I'm I'm really glad you came on. Really glad you talked to me. Really glad you were as open and not as honest as you were. One thing I'm, I've, I've started that I'm doing is I'm kind of just Given my guests the last word, you can talk about whatever you want. You can tell a funny story. You can share something that you think law enforcement needs to hear right now, something citizens need to hear, whatever you want. It can be one minute. It can be 10 minutes. I don't care. Last word, Chris DiPato. I think we touched on it just a little bit ago, um, but not in the, in the detail that I wanted to. When a law enforcement officer in this day and age And when I say in this day and age, I mean with the instant media, the social media, the everybody's got a camera, things like that. When an officer is accused or does make a mistake, it doesn't mean that every single police officer is like that. And you can chime in if you want. I don't mind sharing this last word, but I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I don't think there is another profession anywhere that gets the scrutiny or that gets lumped into one 
box, if you will, as law enforcement officers do. You know, we've all had a teacher that was bad, but we've also had good teachers. Maybe you went to a doctor that had no bedside manner, and then you had another doctor that was fantastic. Maybe you had a guy that did some work on a deck, and he was just shoddy work. And then somebody else came out and made it look all spiff and and shiny. There's bad and good in everything. There's bad and good people. There's bad and good white people. There's bad and good black people. There's bad and good Spanish. Every race has its good and bad people. Police officers are no different. There are very, very good police officers. Are there some bad police officers? Sure. I don't think they started that way. Because again, we talked about that rigorous hiring process, but something happened that made them do something bad or they turned bad. Don't lump all police officers into that bad police officer mentality. That's what I think what gets me the most. You know, no other profession gets lumped together. Close, a close, you know, I shouldn't say close second, but I think second place would might be Catholic priests. Catholic priests, you know, when the whole thing scandal happened, people looked at them maybe as a, in a blanket, all under that same blanket. But I think law enforcement gets it so much worse. There can be a police officer in Tuskegee, Wisconsin, whatever. I don't even know where that is. But he could do something horribly bad. But yet a police officer in Lancaster City, Pennsylvania, is gonna, somebody's going to walk up to him. Oh, are you going to do me like that cop in Wisconsin? Why should that affect us here? What happened way out there? And one person. But it does. Don't lump. Not all police officers are bad. Maybe not all of them are good, but don't lump everybody into one thing because one bad apple does not ruin the bunch. Awesome. That's my final answer. That's my final word. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate it. Much thanks to Chris DePato for coming on the podcast and jumpstarting season two for me. He actually uh, jumped in kind of last minute because I ran into a scheduling conflict with another guest. And I reached out to him, and he was game. He was ready to go on short notice, and I really appreciate that uh, and everything he shared while he was on uh, this episode. As Chris stated, officers go through an extensive process and background investigation to get hired, and most of them do good work and help countless people throughout their careers. As it was in Season 1, so it remains here in Season 2 of Diakonasa Cops Calling, we seek to highlight a small fraction, a very small fraction, of the mostly unseen high-caliber work that the police do. If you're a fan of the show, you know what this segment is called, and you know what this music means. Cue the dip. Cue the dip. It stands for kicking up the dust in pursuit, and in each episode, I pick a cue the dip winner, an officer or officers who absolutely get after it in pursuit of justice. This episode's cue the dip winners are Detroit Police Department police officers Parrish and Flannel, who actually interrupted a kidnapping of several children rescuing them and arresting the suspect. Check this audio out from Fox 2 News out of Detroit. A mother full of emotions as she thanks Detroit police for saving her children from danger. I just thank everyone that's well, that my children are back home safe. Back home where they belong. After police say this woman, Stephanie Marie Binder, was charged with kidnapping Burleigh's four children as they walked to school on Tuesday. The Ring doorbell video provides a small window of what that frightening moment was like for those kids, ages 5 to 11. I hope she gets the maximum time, period, and um, 
can't say what I really want to say. Watching the video of the incident, it was quick. You know, it's disturbing how fast it was, how fast she was able to get the kids into the vehicle. But as Binder was allegedly doing the unthinkable, she ran a red light, and that caught the attention of two Detroit police officers who noticed something wasn't right with the driver's body language. So instead of just writing a ticket, they began asking questions. Are these your children? To which she said yes, at the same time the children were shaking their head no. That's when police knew something was wrong and arrested Binder. The officers whose quick thinking saved the kids acknowledged at a press conference on Friday. I have kids of my own, so it has brought me joy to actually get the kids back home to their mother. It comes down to policing, sometimes it's the right place, the right time. That day I feel like I was at the right place and the right time. And I'm happy they're at home with you. I cried. I cried so hard when I first saw my daughter. She ran up to me and gave me the biggest hug. I was just happy that nothing, you know, that they wasn't harmed. Binder is facing several charges, including four counts of kidnapping and has a $5 million bond. There were some things that were um, troubling and alarming. Per the, the uh, interrogation, we're not going to release that right now. Police say Binder, the woman accused in this case, has a criminal background. I hope she get the maximum time, period. And, um, can't say what I really want to say. In Detroit, Ingrid Kelly, Fox 2 News. Just an amazing story. This occurred back on November 30th, 2021. Uh, the suspect was actually in a stolen van, turned out to be a stolen van. Uh, She approached these four children. They were ages 6 to 11. Initial reports state that she actually offered them candy and snacks uh, and that the youngest child got into the van. The older kids, knowing that they shouldn't uh, be getting into this van, did get into the van, but they did so to make sure that their six-year-old sibling was not alone inside this van. Officers Parrish and Flannel stopped the van for a red light violation, as you heard. You heard how this investigation progressed and how they used their experience and questioning to rescue the children and arrest the suspect. From what I understand, the suspect had several fair-to-respond warrants. Uh, She also had previous retail fraud charges and had recently been uh, discharged and released from parole. Uh, What she was on parole for was for leaving the scene of an accident that she caused and which killed another person. Her bail was set at $5 million, which is awesome, especially in our day when certain groups are calling for bail to be abolished. So Officer Parrish and Officer Flannel are this episode's cue the dip winners for addressing a minor traffic violation, something that seemed insignificant and which officers do every day, doing something that some people want the cops to completely stop doing, but they did it. And in doing that simple enforcement, they possibly saved the lives of four kids or at least rescued them from some horrible things. Just really awesome stuff couple things that stood out to me about this incident. If you notice when I do these cue the dip segments, I never talk about the race of the suspects or the race of the officers because, quite frankly, it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. The skin color of the suspect or the officers has no bearing on, uh, on these incidents. The actions of those involved, whether criminal or heroic, righteous or evil, that's what matters. However, our press and some of our politicians, whether local, state, or federal, have been beating this drum about how law enforcement is systemically racist in this country. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I completely reject that notion. And I just wanted to make some points about that in light of this case. Detroit, uh, like every other city, has many different people in it. Detroit has a white mayor. They have a black police chief. The two officers in this case are two different races. 
one being black and one being white. The suspect in this case is white. The victim's mother in this case appears to be Latino or black, so I assume the victims were as well or at least mixed race and not appearing white. No one in this incident cared about race. What did they care about? A minor crime being committed and addressing it, which led to the termination of a major crime and most likely the saving of lives. But here's another thing I want to point out. I'm sure these officers noticed, as any officer would have, the difference in race between the white suspect and the children. And, and I'm sure that it played some part in their questions or how they began to ask certain things and their level of suspicion. I think we would agree that that is not wrong. The fact that the suspect in this case was white, and the fact that they picked up that the children in this case were not white, and the fact that they used that just partially, not completely, but partially to just kind of raise some red flags and begin to question, um, question the suspect. And I'm sure there were many other red flags that they noticed, but I'm sure they also noticed race in this situation. And me saying something like that is just more acceptable because the suspect in this case is white. But imagine the suspect was a black male in this case and the kids were white. Would the police be given the same leeway to use that observation to drive any questions or to at least cause them to have some questions? I'm not saying they wouldn't have been given that leeway, but it just strikes me that every day, officers of all different races, are engaged with suspects of all different races and victims of all different races. And immediately, when a white officer has to engage with a black suspect, it becomes a race issue without any facts known, without any context given, without any explanation. It's labeled in certain ways and pushed by the press in certain ways. Actions and crimes of the suspect are downplayed. Actions and enforcement of the officer is scrutinized through a lens of race unless the suspect is white, and then no one cares. I'm not saying that in this case, had races of victims and suspects been different, that that would have happened. It's just something that I think we've been slowly brainwashed to do whenever we see these incidents to look at race, and it's making many people lose sight of critically thinking in these situations. All right, time for my new segment, So Woke, It's Broke. One of the goals for this podcast is to push back against the negative and harmful narrative about the police and what they do. Right now, we have many politicians and high-level leaders in law enforcement that have completely lost sight of the mission of this profession. They fancy themselves woke at a higher level than others, more acutely aware and alert to injustice, especially racism. And so they have developed ideas and programs and policy that are completely and absolutely ridiculous. These ideas and programs do much to tickle the ears of those who fancy themselves as super social justice warriors, but often they cause such a level of pain and suffering for many and just completely demolish the mission of law enforcement, breaking it into pieces, or as I like to say, so woke it's broke. I personally completely reject all that is woke. It is poison. It promotes people to believe that they are more educated and have special knowledge which they will use to rescue people. In fact, it actually does exactly what it claims to want to stop. Wokeness promotes an idea that some people 
based on race, wealth, status, sex are unable to do for themselves and that they need a woke social justice warrior, one who has special knowledge and ability because of who they are to rescue these people. Not equality, but equity. The idea that the same outcome for all, regardless of actions, character, decisions, crimes committed of that individual. There is no personal responsibility in wokeness, only levels of victimhood. And these levels of victimhood, people are incapable of escaping without the help of woke people. So yeah, I reject wokeness, and it destroys everything it comes in contact with. So keeping that in mind, this episode's So Woke It's Broke comes out of Chicago. No surprise there, as Chicago and their ridiculous way of doing things makes for easy pickings. So just to give a little background on this, Cook County is the county Chicago is located in. Back in 2019, Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans publicly stated that no, quote, horrible incidents had occurred under the court's bond reform initiative. I got this information from CWB Chicago, uh, which is a news agency out of Chicago, which I really enjoy following. So CWB Chicago, my absolute, again, favorite news agency out of Chicago, began to track suspects who had been charged with murder, attempted murder, or trying to kill a person while out on bond for a pending felony case. So keep in mind, they aren't tracking suspects out on bond for felony cases that are doing any other crimes other than murder or attempted murder. In addition to these numbers, as CWB Chicago points out, are probably actually much higher because since 2017, Chicago PD has only made arrests in 4% of their shootings and 31% of their murders. So if those rates were higher, I'm sure the number of suspects out on bond for felony in these cases would go up exponentially. So that's the background, and this bail reform initiative is so woke, it's broke, and CWB Chicago tracked it and found that in 2021, and they've actually, I think, been tracking it since 2019, but in 2021, 62 suspects were out on bail for felony cases, got rearrested for murder or trying to murder. I'll just highlight number 62, the last one of 2021. So this suspect, who I won't even name because he doesn't deserve that respect, has the following record and was out walking around and doing whatever he wanted to do, which included him shooting at two police officers and trying to murder them on Christmas Eve uh, of 2021 as they tried to arrest him for openly carrying carrying a handgun. Here's that violent criminal's history. He's been involved in guns and violence in Chicago since 2013. In March 2021, he was arrested at the same location he shot at cops at on Christmas Eve. During that March arrest, he was carrying a gun and only had to post $500 to get out of jail. He was still on bond for that March case when he tried to kill these two police officers back on Christmas Eve. In the March case, the suspect had run from the police, threw the gun, and you guessed it, the gun was stolen. During the arraignment for that case, the judge, Judge Mary Marubio, was told by prosecutors that the suspect had prior felony convictions for unlawful use of a weapon and aggravated assault of a police officer, but the prosecutor did not tell the judge that this prior was due to the suspect actually pointing a gun at police who were chasing him. The the prosecutor also did not tell the judge that the suspect had an arson conviction in 2019, where he was originally charged with aiding and abetting murder. 
Regardless of what the prosecutor did or did not tell Judge Mary Marubio, she had plenty of information in front of her to put this guy in jail, set an extremely high bail, and keep him in jail until the trial for that March incident. But nope, that's not what she did. Instead, she gave him electronic monitoring at home if he could post 10% on his bail, which was set at a measly $5,000. So he paid that $500 back in March and was put on an electronic monitor. Of course, a month later, it gets worse, when Judge Edward Maloney saw fit to remove the electronic monitor device requirement. Although he was told, the suspect that is, was told, you now have a curfew from 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Here's a suspect who literally has no regard for laws. He commits violence and carries guns on a whim, and the courts expect him to follow a curfew. This stuff is insane. So fast forward to Christmas Eve 2021. He's now been off electronic monitor for months. Uh, He's been out of prison since March. and. Christmas Eve 2021, he's out late at night, nearly four hours after his uh, curfew, no shock there, and he's pulling a gun from his waistband whenever a car passes by him. Police go to the call, people on the block warn the suspect that the cops are coming into the block, and he runs, and then he starts shooting at the police who return fire. The suspect at one point during this foot pursuit and shooting took cover behind a car and continued to shoot at the police before running again. At some point, the suspect was shot and apprehended. CWB Chicago also found that this suspect had been featured in a rap video back, uh, I I think, I want to say 2013, 2015, uh, with violence and guns. This video featured gang members with guns, and this suspect had been one of these gang members. So it appears from the article by CWB Chicago that the suspect was finally held without bail for this attempted murder of police officers. So why is this happening? Why is this suspect, like many others, not getting locked up and kept in lockup for pending felony cases? Well, there's a huge movement right now in this country, including in Chicago, against bail. There are actually organizations like Appleseed Network that want to end money bond, among many other things, and they have chapters in several states that are trying to make this happen. If Appleseed sounds familiar to you, you may be a football fan. They have been heavily running a commercial about Alabama Appleseed. It opens with a young lady saying that where she is from, poverty is a crime. Pretty misleading. We can all agree that crime levels tend to be higher in poverty-stricken areas, but poverty is not a crime, and it's not treated as a crime. I get what they're trying to promote. I get what they're trying to say, that the police tend to be uh, have a heavier presence in areas that are poverty-stricken. But those areas also have higher levels of crime. So I, I understand what they're trying to promote, but the verbiage and how things are said in these commercials uh, and in the press is so important to these programs. This same commercial also features Modus Wright, who was given a life sentence for a robbery of $28 um, and, and who recently won his freedom thanks to Alabama Appleseed. Uh, in preparation for this episode, I tried to find out information about that robbery, like what actually happened during that robbery, if a weapon was used, like what happened. And I also tried to find out about Wright's past criminal history, which obviously would have a bearing on this case. I could find nothing. What I do know 
Well, I, sh I should say I probably could find something. I just need to pay money to be able to get those records. What I do know is that Wright was given his life sentence under Alabama's Habitual Felony Offender Act. So that tells you something about his record. It does appear that Wright was a model prisoner and did things to improve his record uh, while he was incarcerated and is currently doing things on the outside now to become a good and productive member of society. And so I, I wish him well. But Appleseed Network is pushing hard to get people out of prison and end bail. And guess where else Appleseed Network has a chapter? Yep, Chicago. And in 2018, they released a pamphlet highlighting their work all over the country. Remember earlier uh, when I discussed Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans and his public statement in 2008, uh, excuse me, 2019 that no horrible incidents has occurred under the court's bond reform? initiative? Remember him? Well, in this pamphlet in 2018 from Appleseed Network, a current project they highlighted was titled Ending Money Bond. And it said this, Chicago Appleseed convenes an advocacy group known as the Coalition to End Money Bond. The group, with strong support from Chicago Appleseed, persuaded Chief Judge Evans of the Circuit Court of Cook County to issue a general order that reduced the amount of money bond required by defendants. This work resulted in a reduction of the Cook County jail population by 1,400 people. 1,400 people out of jail, and that was back in 2018. Who are these people? Sounds nice, tickles the ears, but it provides no clear idea of who is being released and what they are capable of. CWB Chicago is doing that, and it's downright mind-blowing and proves that violent felons are being released. This pamphlet from the Appleseed Network goes on uh, to talk about several other items and highlight uh, other things that they're doing. I'm going to read some of that to you. The other thing that highlighted was titled Reforming the Bail Bond System. It said, almost two-thirds of the individuals held in Texas county jails have not been convicted of any crime but are being detained before trial because they cannot afford the bond amount set in their cases or even 10% of the bond amount to pay a bail bondsman. Texas Appleseed is working to reform the current bail bond system so that decisions about pretrial release and supervision are based upon risk level and research rather than the amount of money a defendant has. So real quickly, two-thirds of these individuals, if that's a correct statement, are, are not convicted because their trials haven't happened yet. They are being held for trial. They're awaiting trial. So the question should be, what are those trials for? What is, this, what is the crime being charged? What, if any, aggravating circumstances surround that crime? How many of those prisoners did get out of jail and reoffend only to be sent back in and to be held for trial? Those are the, the questions that are so important. You, you make these broad statements, you, you paint with a broad brush, you say two-thirds of the individuals in, in Texas county jails have not been convicted of a crime, but there's no context to that. There's no, none of these questions that I just asked are being posed. And in regards to talking about bond, uh, bail bond system and the decisions about pretrial release being based on risk level and research, that happens literally every day. This is already done and discussed at arraignments. I've witnessed it. At every single arraignment, there is a level of research done by the prosecutor, by the defense attorney, and they argue about it. 
this person should be held without bail or this person should be held with a high bail or we ask that the court keep this person in jail until the trial for these reasons that that's already being done the risk level assessment is already being done another thing Appleseed Network highlighted in this pamphlet was analyzing debtors prison reform they said in Texas tens of thousands of people are being sent to jail each year for failure to pay tickets, fines, and court fees arising from criminal cases. Texas Appleseed is focused on analyzing the extent of these problems statewide with an eye toward ensuring enforcement of the state and federal constitutional guarantee that no Texan who is unable to pay a debt, whether it rises from contact with the criminal justice system or a private loan, is arrested or jailed simply because they are unable to pay. First of all, there is no such thing as a debtor's prison. It doesn't exist. And the verbiage that people use in this, in this program and that whatever this uh, Appleseed Network is, it, it, it's very important that they use and say things a certain way to uh, tickle the ears of people and get them to give to their cause. But there is no such thing as debtor's prison. There is such a thing of if you don't pay a fine or you're convicted of a crime where you have to uh, pay the victim back or you have to pay fines that help pay the victim back and you don't do that, that you could be held accountable for that. Or in the case of summary violations where there, where there is a fine, that's part of the consequence, paying the fine. You know, we've all heard the, the statement, if you can't pay the fine, don't do the crime. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. It doesn't matter to these people. Fines from summary or criminal convictions, money owed uh, to, to pay a fine, some of those fines then used to help reimburse victims for loss. That's part of the consequence of doing these crimes. So that if the person doesn't pay it, it can turn into a warrant. But they're not being thrown in jail because they don't have money. They're being thrown in jail because they've decided they have more important things to do then pay this. Sure, is it a hardship for some of them? Absolutely. But then don't do the crime. Again, this idea of personal responsibility is just weakened and taken out of uh, these discussions. I will also say that sometimes in lieu of a fine, like in minor cases, I've actually seen suspects elect to, elect to and ask the judge to just serve a small sentence to satisfy the court instead of paying the fine. So they may have five, $600 in fines that they haven't paid and that have gone up, uh, you know, since they haven't paid them. And I've had suspects ask the judge if they can just do, give me like a four day sentence or something like that and, and satisfy the court and have that fine erased. Is it a perfect system? No. But we are not throwing people in this country into jail because they're poor or because it's a debtor's prison. That is not happening. But the verbiage that's being used is used specifically to promote certain ideas, create certain pictures in people's heads, gain money, and try to ramrod these, these uh, no-bail reforms through. And what we have happening is what we see going on in Chicago where we have violent felons out. Without a bail system and without being able to hold people accountable to pay their fines, what, what, are, what consequences are on the table? How do you hold someone accountable for something 
where there is no consequence for failing to make a victim whole or, or satisfying the fine. The bottom line is the bail reform movement in Chicago and, su- and supported and pushed by the Appleseed Network is so woke, it's broke. And now, for some hope. I cannot just end these episodes without sharing hope. It's the only answer we have. This world is marching toward the end. But if you don't know Jesus, you can and you can have hope. How do I know that this world is moving toward the end? Well, you guessed it. The Bible tells us. In Matthew 24, 35, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Ultimately, this world is going to end. The world as we see it is going to end. Uh, But God's word, his word, will not pass away. This is why we can have full confidence in the Bible and what it tells us. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. That sounds a lot like the world we're living in right now, doesn't it? Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Are you a sinner? Am I a sinner? Yes, we are. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, 8-10 puts it this way, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Maybe you're thinking right now and wondering, am I ready? How do I know if I'm ready? How can I be saved from the coming destruction? Is there a way? There is. Go back to John, go back to 1 John 1 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a way. Or go back to Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom proclaimed as a testimony or as proof, as evidence of the kingdom of God and his salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way. For we know that Jesus came to this earth fully man and fully God, born of a virgin and completely perfect and sinless. He became sin and died on the cross, paying the penalty that I deserved and that you deserve. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. After dying on the cross, Jesus rose three days later, conquering sin and death, that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is our message of hope. That is how we can look at all the woke things around us and have hope. That is how you can listen to the mess of this world as described in this podcast and still have hope. That is how we can listen to the sad and disturbing stories of officers on this podcast who have seen tragedy and sin and broken bodies and murder and rape and who have made mistakes and stumbled and struggled and we can still have hope. For right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father and one day he will judge the living and the dead. Be ready for that moment. A moment that could come at any time, for you are not in charge of that moment, and I am not in charge of that moment. You don't have a say when it happens, but we know it's coming. But right now can be a different moment, the moment of salvation for you. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise with eternal impact for your soul. I hope and I pray that you make that decision right now. And if you do, let me know. I'd love to talk to you and help you get plugged in to a local church near you. Listen, if you're in law enforcement, I'm back in with you. Don't ever stop doing your job. Even if those around you have lost sight of the mission or are even sabotaging the mission, keep moving, keep going. Don't ever stop kicking up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker.